Support for Boston Public Radio comes from New England Recovery Center, providing inpatient addiction treatment in state-of-the-art facilities located in Westboro, Mass. All major insurance plans accepted. Learn more at newenglandrecoverycenter.org. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. A couple of uh, programming announcements. The Boston Police Commissioner was supposed to be with us tomorrow. He canceled this morning, allegedly rescheduling for November. We hope he does. The Attorney General will join us on Friday for an hour at the library, and the Mayor will join us, Mayor Boston, for an hour next Tuesday. One other note, as we're watching opening statements in Trump's massive fraud trial in New York City, uh, Larry Tribe, Harvard Law Professor Emeritus and probably America's premier constitutional law expert and pretty uh, big-time lawyer herself, former federal judge Nancy Gertner, they'll both join us at noon Very exciting. to talk us on my, to talk about all of uh, Trump's uh, legal travails. We're joined now in Studio 3 by State Representative Michael Conley. He represents Cambridge and Somerville in the 26th Middlesex District. He's here because he is championing a ballot campaign that could lead to rent control being voted on by you in November of next year's election. Representative, it's good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank Pleasure. you very much for, for coming in. So tell people first um, what this this ballot question would do, what it's going to mean. This ballot question would overturn that 1994 prohibition, the ban on local rent control. And it would simply empower our city officials to take action to protect tenants. And it wouldn't mandate that there be rent control anywhere. Is that correct? That's correct. What would it? So it would say that the local elected key body, whether it's a town meeting or a mayor or a council, that governing body would decide whether or not some form of rent control should exist in that individual community. Correct. Correct. Okay. And that's a huge difference between the, the from the ninety four question that. Uh, Law statewide, but one in the towns that had a rent control of uh, Boston, Brookline, and Cambridge. That's a big deal, right? I think. Absolutely. And, you know, I actually heard Jim's comments on this, and I would agree. You know, this is about democracy uh, in many ways. You know, we will be asking the voters to give their city officials or their town officials the power to protect tenants. And so it's certainly something we've done polling, and we've seen some very strong support. Yeah, we want to talk about polling a minute. I, I just want to spend 30 seconds on this 1994 thing. It, I did write a piece for The Globe saying this is really about democracy. It's not about rent control. Local governments should be able to make decisions, right or wrong, for the people who elected them. But uh, the most egregious thing of all, I used to do ballot questions for a living. Marjorie and I have discussed this a thousand times. In 1994, the question, as they said, 348 cities and towns that did not have rent control voted to repeal it, even though it didn't affect them. And the three communities that did have rent control control voted overwhelmingly to keep it. I mean, the insanity is talk about lack of democracy. And what we end up uh, with potentially, assuming you make it to the ballot next year, is, uh, again, not the implementation of rent control, but the democratic right for local governments to do it. The the opponents are saying things like uh, 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 it's going to kill development. Nobody's going to uh, uh, engage in new development if it turns out they know that they're going to be rent limitations, which could end up being draconian, the argument goes. What do you say to them? Well, our proposal fully exempts new construction for a period of 15 years. Like Wu's legislation does. Exactly. Was, that, yeah. that was honestly, I think, the inspiration for that element. And, you know, I also think more broadly, people have asked me, can you name one city that has had rent control and has seen housing production? 
And I said, well, you know, New York City, I think, started with rent control in the 1940s. They've added over one million units of housing uh, over the, you know, many decades. And so I think if you look at history, uh, rent control is fully consistent with housing development and economic growth. So here's the kind of uh, – we're going to talk about this with listeners in a little while. Here's the kind of question we're going to get. This is from a landlord who says, more than half of the rentable units in Massachusetts are owned by small individuals, landlords like myself. Personally, I spent over $40,000 of my own money this year for upgrades, porches, heating systems. It's impossible to get a bad tenant out of your unit without paying them. It can cost tens of thousands of dollars. Everything is up. In what world is it fair that someone can tell me what I can charge a tenant? I can't stand hardcore conservatives, but you drive people to them with these ridiculous something or others. The last part of it's gone. Well, you know, I think another big feature of our proposal is that it would fully exempt small owner-occupant landlords. So if you are an owner of a duplex or a triple-decker and you live on the property, you're fully exempt. So this is really those who are engaged in, in that kind of commercial activity across multiple buildings. And then, you know, we should also emphasize uh, this proposal fully allows for landlords to recoup a return on their investment in, in order to obtain uh, fair net operating income. These are standard provisions of, of rent control policies over the years, and, and I think we can do this in a way that is fair to landlords and fair to tenants. You don't put a cap on it like Wu does, do you, or do you? No, we don't attempt to prescribe those details. Okay. We leave that to, to city officials. What's so this? hold on I'm for sorry. one second. You, you talk about the small landlords. Is owner-occupied in three units maybe too small? Maybe you get further with a six units or nine units? I think it's a fair question, and to that point, our proposal doesn't prevent a local municipality for, from deciding upon broader exemptions. Okay. So in a specific community, if they decide six units is the number, then that community would have that ability. Okay. What's the status of, uh, uh, of this uh, thing? You got certified by the Attorney General with a bunch of other questions. You got to go out and collect a ton of signatures by a, whatever date it is. Well, what's the status? So we are collecting the signatures actively. We recently hired our first staffer, Art Gordon, who's taken on the role of organizing director. Uh, as of today, our second staffer is coming on board. And what we see here is public demand for this issue. And, and at present, there are more folks out there who want to volunteer to collect signatures than we've even gotten started. And so we really see this signature gathering campaign ramping up over the coming weeks. When and you have, what's the deadline for collecting signatures? November 22nd. Why did you wait? The Globe reports you waited two weeks to get signatures after it was certified. And as someone who used to do ballot campaigns, I told Marjorie before the show, we would practically run from the Attorney General's <laughs> office with a certification over to Ashburton Place, the Secretary of State, so the petitions can be printed. You brought them into the studio. What took you so long? Uh, well, when we received the certification, we announced at that point that we were going to continue engaging in conversation with rent control advocates and, and with everyone concerned. And so we were really looking to build more consensus for moving to the ballot um, before we actually filed the papers. So the other thing, the 94 uh, law went south I think for a lot of reasons, but one of the big ones was it wasn't means tested. But what you're saying with this local option deal is if this wins statewide in your ballot, towns that want it could say people they could mean they could means they could make all their own rules for how it's going to work in the particular town, including means testing. 
I believe that would be an option, yes, under okay. the ability of a town to come up with its own exemptions or framework. You know, uh, I can't believe Marjorie waited this long to say, how is it that a landlord who owns $42 million of property and, and is a legislator can vote on this thing since it obviously affects his self-interest? When you talk to your colleagues, and you, I assume you do this, and even though it doesn't need legislative approval, unlike Mayor Wu's proposal, which does need legislative approval, this is if you get signatures, goes before the voters, and they decide whether it becomes law or not. When you speak to a legislator, forget someone who owns $42 million of property, and a lot of land, uh, there are a lot of uh, property owners in the legislature, as the Globe brilliantly reported, and you say, this doesn't impose rent control. It just allows whoever governs your hometown of Springfield or Milford or whatever it is to make a decision, small d, democratically. What is their – I mean, what is the answer? Are they just scared of the real estate industry? You know, I think there's a wide range of opinions. There's surprising support in places in this state where it, it's certainly well beyond Cambridge, Boston, Somerville these days. No, I'm talking about individual legislators. When you say to them, this doesn't implement rent control, it allows the elected officials in your hometown where you live, Mr. or Ms. Legislator, to make a decision. I don't even understand what the argument is against that. I, what is their argument? You know, I think you'd have to ask them uh, for their opinion. There, there's a wide range of opinions. There's certainly a lot of support, I think, in the legislature, and there's a lot of opposition. And I think some of that opposition is, frankly, out of touch with the reality. You know, we have gone... Or it's in touch because they're big landlords. I mean, it's one of the two, right? I mean, yeah, sure. You know, that could be the perspective. But, you know, one one point that I that I do point out is if you go back 103 years... The longest period that we have not had rent control in Massachusetts is the past 29 years. So rent control, rent stabilization is a normal, moderate uh -huh. policy to help stabilize tenants. Going 30 years with no form of rent stabilization in the face of a housing emergency, that's the radical extreme thing from a historical perspective. That's State Representative Mike Conley, who's the chief uh, moving force behind this ballot question that could make it uh, before the voters in November of next year. We're going to talk about polling and some opposition within the pro-rent control community to the ballot campaign in a second. And by the way, just to be clear, if I assume people know us, know this to be the case, assuming that uh, uh, Representative Connolly and his colleagues get the required signatures, we will obviously invite the real estate interests who oppose this uh, onto the show. Plus, we'll have debates aplenty between now and next November. So, uh, uh, Diana DiZaglio, who's the auditor, has a question <laughs> on the ballot. And she was in our studio about a month ago and played a recording of a song she had written about the issue. She then sang it a few days later at the Democratic State Convention. Let's just play like 10 seconds of Desaglio doing her tune. Here it is. So we can't miss this moment. We won't miss this chance. Gonna give it our best. This is the time for the people to be heard. This is the time. <laughs> This is at the Democratic State yeah. Convention. It was in Lowell, right? Is that I, was, it was? I was in the room. I made a point to get in there and listen to this. It was pretty, pretty incredible. It was really extraordinary. Belt it out, can't she? Yeah. Now, she I'm sure can. I'm afraid to bring up the next thing. Apparently, were you inspired by her? Is that I, I was. You know, I was listening to the show two weeks ago, and I thought, you know, oh if there's God. a rent, if there's a 
If there's a song for that question, maybe there needs to be a song for okay, this question. So, but uh, I warn you, I, I have a feeling it's not quite up to Desaglio level, but we shall see. I don't think so. Here's Mike Connolly with his friends Jesse Gallagher and Webb Sanquist. Is that did I get it right? Okay, they recorded this sort of rough demo at the Lily Pad on Friday, and it's called Rent Control. Can't wait. Here it is. In the 1920s. In the 1940s, staying on message. Yeah. In the 1950s, and from 1970 to I have to say, that was pretty great. By the way, you Are couldn't you the hear the back. Are you singer there? He is. I, I am, but I would say, if anyone is more musically inclined than me, and you're, and you're hearing this, get in touch, because we might yeah. put the band together. I don't okay. think anybody's less musically inclined. By the way, what you couldn't hear in this recording is when you sang in the 1920s, the background singers were singing. We had rent control. In the 1940s, they had rent control, etc. Well, I think that's going to be a big help. You know so, something? I don't think most people know that. I didn't know that. What? That there had been rent it control? Was, it, not, yeah, in the 1920s. Well, you knew it had been repealed in 94. That, I, I did, but it was only in three yeah. three uh, towns. By the way, why are you renting? You can't afford a house in Massachusetts on a state rep's uh, salary there? Yeah. You know, when I went to law school, I read the brochure, mm -hmm. and I thought that lawyers were people who made piles and piles and piles <laughs> of money, yeah. and they fought for justice and, and the underrepresented all day. And then as I went through, I learned that, you know, it doesn't immediately work out that way. Uh -huh. And so... You know, I'm a renter in probably one of the most expensive housing markets in the United States. Well, also, you didn't learn in law school. If you represent a former president, you don't even get paid. Forget <laughs> don't get paid enough. So uh, one of the most interesting parts of the story, I think, for most people who have been following it, is there are some elements of the pro-rent control community that are not only opposing your ballot question and say that I want you to go to the ballot. They're actually even, according to the Globe reporting, urging funders not to give you money what's the what are they concerned about what is the issue i assume you're talking to them what's the status of it yes there have been ongoing conversations i think there are concerns on the left that if we advance this question you know how will we compete with the real estate industry the real estate industry is determined as we've heard to pour 30 million dollars uh in opposition to this question and certainly the first thing I would emphasize is there are several steps to this process, so we welcome everyone's voice in the conversation. And second thing I would emphasize is I believe the public and the voters are ahead of not just the politicians, but even some of the professional advocates. And what we've seen out there is just extraordinary interest in taking action to do something to address this housing emergency. Yeah, I'm going to stay on that for a second. By the way, there are also some concerns about somebody who is the primary sponsor of rent control legislation before you and your colleagues. That's Mayor Wu. We asked her uh, last month about whether or not she supported your ballot question. Here's a little bit of back and forth with the mayor. So I think there's still more conversations to be had among the larger advocacy community about whether this is the moment to mount that kind of uh, large-scale Grounds. So you're not even on board yet, is what you're saying. You, you're I support the idea the, of it. I absolutely support the concept that cities should be able to make their own but decisions. But you're not on board on the ballot question Yes, yet. I have yet to kind of officially okay. sift through, meet with, and um, decide my particular involvement in that campaign. But I want to be clear. Is the con I, I so, One story I read 
which defied credibility is uh, or some of the rent control advocates saying we should give the legislature a chance. You got to be a fool to think that your colleagues are going to that no one believes that the legislature is going to approve rent control, do they? Well, I would say the le- the legislature should approve rent uh, control. That was my question. And to your question, you know, I, I think many people have looked at the situation and said that, you know, there isn't an appetite for it. I think that was a WGBH headline from the spring, little appetite for rent control on Beacon Hill. And one of the, I think, confounding factors here is, first of all, I give Mayor Wu tremendous credit for being a leader on this issue, for running for mayor on a rent control platform and winning in a landslide and then following through, bringing everyone to the table to draft that home rule petition. I actually checked last night. The city of Boston's home rule petition doesn't have any co-sponsors on Beacon Hill. And so it really, you know, I think it's a discouraging sign of where we stand in this housing emergency that we haven't taken up action on those kinds of very moderate and reasonable proposals. But, you know, so that that does not look good for rent control, obviously. But I wonder what you think just in principle, uh, as Jim Bradley pointed out in his brilliant column in the Boston Globe about about rent control should not be controlled by the legislature. Um, a lot of the people that are on Beacon Hill are, are I think it's 90% of property owners, and a lot of them are big-time property owners. There's one senator in Andover who has $42 million in properties. So I guess in principle— Barry Feingold, by the way, we should just say. Yeah. It's fine. It's Senator Feingold. Is it not? Yeah, I mean, in principle, should be— nothing illegal about it, but No, it there's nothing illegal it about it, but I'm just not clear it because they because they have such a financial stake in this. If people that own, I don't know, pick a number, more than $5 million in rental property, I mean, should even be allowed— to vote. What do you think? You know, again, um, I really can't speak for other legislators or their property holdings. I, you know, I just think we need to look at the reality out there and listen to our constituents who are clearly telling us that they believe cities and towns should have the power to protect tenants. 81% of renters, according to our survey that we published in Commonwealth Magazine, over 60% of homeowners across Massachusetts support lifting the ban on rent control. And that support is strong in every county in our Commonwealth. And so I can't speak for how other legislators make that decision, but I think the public but do you think, is I'm clear. Just like, I'm asking if you think that's fair. I, 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 would not, I don't think it's fair that someone that owns that kind of property, because they're, they're, it's almost like a, I mean, their financial interest is, is wrapped up in this. I, you know, I think that's a reasonable position. I mean, I, I you know, like I said, I, I, I would let other legislators speak for themselves. And I, I'd really, I'd encourage the public to let your legislator know. I'll also mention we have a new website, www.rentcontrol2024.com. So if anyone's listening, if they want to help us collect the signatures, check it out. I want to stay with this opposition thing for a, a second here is, is uh, one of the problems with ballot campaigns, which I support, if you're frustrated by a legislator, the beauty of having direct democracy like half the states have is people can be heard. But obviously, that's not totally true. Because in my experience and my reading about these kinds of things through the years, uh, when there's a huge imbalance in funding, almost without exception, the side that raises the most money, not if it's close, but if it's a huge imbalance, the the uh, side with the most money, doesn't matter what their argument is, is going to win. And realistically speaking, again, I don't know how 
honest or direct. The other pro-rent control uh, organizations are being about why they're concerned about this. But let's assume the real estate industry raises what they say they will. I have no idea if it's BS or not. They say to the media they're going to raise $30 million. I mean, you can't even come marginally close no matter what kind of good fundraising you do. So what do you say to that if that's real? How do you win in a campaign where the real estate industry, which apparently doesn't care what the question says, because in my opinion, it protects them, but that obviously they're, they feel otherwise. Uh, uh, what do you say to the, the financial uh, disparity? You know, I think in any campaign, it's it's not necessarily about raising the most money. It's just about having enough money or resources to get your message out. The polling that we did publish in Commonwealth Magazine, it was very intentionally designed as a message testing poll. Mm -hmm. And so we tested people on the basic question. We found about 65% support statewide. And then you present the voter with all of those most aggressive arguments that we know the real estate industry will make against this question. And we saw no significant loss of support following the message testing. And so I'd also point to when the city of Boston, the city council, was debating Mayor Wu's home rule petition. As, as we recall, the Greater Boston Real Estate Board said we're immediately going to drop $400,000, literally like in a week, to try to influence that vote mm -hmm. in the city of Boston. That had zero impact on the outcome. And so, again, I think we have reached a point, a point of severity in this crisis where the people of Massachusetts are not going to let the real estate industry scare them away from this option. You know, one, can I ask one last legislative thing? Forget your ballot campaign, which again, does not require, unless it's a constitutional amendment, which this isn't, doesn't require legislative approval. If, if Representative Connolly and his allies get the signatures and they're verified by the uh, appropriate authorities in the state, it will appear on the ballot in November 2024. That's all you got to do in that kind of thing. Uh, let's look at Mayor Wu's thing for a second. You've been hesitant in answer to Marjorie's question to criticize your colleagues. I understand that. I assume because you're worried they'll take away your five-month vacation. But they, <laughs> trust me, I've researched it. They can't do it. Everybody gets a five-month vacation in the legislature in the election year. I don't understand at all when a duly elected mayor who, as you said, won in a landslide, and it wasn't a misdirection play. She ran. She calls it rent stabilization. The same thing. Different. She ran on it front and center. So nobody who voted said, oh, she pulled a bait and switch on us. We didn't know she So she supported this front and center. She won in a total landslide. And the city council voted, I think it was 11 to 2 in favor of this thing. I, I, I'm sorry to be a broken record. I don't understand how a legislator from Fitchburg or frankly from Cambridge, says it is any of their damn business what Boston does if their elected leaders overwhelmingly support well, is, something. And this is so many things. It's well, also it's liquor, like liquor licenses, licenses yeah. I mean, what is the – you don't have to badmouth anybody in particular. Is there an <laughs> argument you've heard that is even marginally credible to, uh, to oppose local elected – and by the way – it may be a horrible decision they make. That's the price of we elect people. They do what yeah. they do. Is there any argument against this? I haven't heard a convincing argument, no. Well, wasn't the original argument, you're Irish, that the Irish were going to run amok? Wasn't that the idea? That was that the, the liquor Brahmins, license thing, yeah, exactly. Brahmins didn't want the, the uh, Irish immigrants to go crazy. I mean, I, I don't think the Irish immigrants are – I think we're all behaving ourselves. I think so. And, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's purely anti-democratic. And, again, you know – 
rent stabilization, rent control. This is a concept. Our state legislature enacted it in the year 1920. Uh, I, I was told that Calvin Coolidge was a supporter. I haven't um, <laughs> verified that exactly. That would have a yet. major effect on my vote. So please let us know. I will. Uh, thank you. So a couple of things. The, the argument that the prior that landlord about eviction. I know every town can make their own rules, but that is one of the things that landlords complain about a lot. They can't evict people. Well, actually, you know the. Coming out of the pandemic, the state set up, the trial courts set up a dashboard for evictions, and we have seen, unfortunately, the return of evictions to pre-pandemic levels. So if someone is out there saying you can't evict tenants, uh, the reality um, contradicts that. Well, let me also say, I I represent tenants in the South Bronx for seven years. It is about a thousand times easier to evict a tenant in Massachusetts than it is in New York City. And I know it doesn't make a landlord in Brighton happy because he or she would say, well, I'm not in New York City. But this notion that our laws favor tenants over landlords, at least as an objective observer, is BS. And one and, more time. One more, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to jump in. Sorry to interrupt. Right. You know, the statistics around eviction only really show what shows up in court. And so, so many evictions happen when a tenant may not be fully aware of their rights. Yep. They get a scary letter and they just abandon the That's property. A wonderful point. And one more time, the argument that uh, rent control stifles development. What, what's your rejoinder to that? You know, uh, I think. The history doesn't bear that out. And moreover, I think if you look at the proposal that we're putting forward or the proposal that the city of Boston has made, we are exempting new construction for a period of 15 years. I actually there, there was a quote from Greg Vassell from the Greater Boston Real Estate Board uh, back in the spring. He was on the Commonwealth Magazine podcast, and he he indicated that that kind of proposal could work for the real estate industry. And then he said, we're going to fight it tooth and nail anyways. But we're even hearing from some in the real estate industry that this kind of proposal is something they're comfortable with. You know, one last thing. This is an unrelated question, but one of the arguments I used to hear back in 94 that you can't afford uh, to fix up your apartments if uh, we have rent control. And from what I've seen of the apartments in an area you represent, Somerville, I mean, they're not fixing up the apartments without rent control. I mean, they're renting real dumps for big time money. They are. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's, um, I, what do you think of that argument? You know, I think a hundred years ago, if we were sitting around saying we need fire escapes and smoke alarms, there'd uh-huh. be somebody saying, wait a minute, you know, yeah. how, how will landlords pencil the math on that? I think when we look back on this period, we will say, how did we not have basic regulations? And the surprising thing is when I talk to certain constituents or or people in the community, many people assume there are some rules. You know, many people assume that, well, a landlord couldn't just say, I'm going to double your rent or I'm not going to extend your lease for no reason. Uh, People need to understand there are truly no rules uh, when it comes to rent or evictions uh, in many respects. Okay. And what's the website one more time? www.rentcontrol2024.com. And you can go there. You can actually download the petition. You can sign up to volunteer. You can make a contribution. And we're looking forward to working with everyone to put this on the ballot. And by the way, once again, we will be inviting as soon as assuming that these signatures are certified and they're on their way to the ballot. We'll invite the opponents, representatives, the real estate people. The only caveat, Marjorie agreed this morning is they have to sing, uh, uh, <laughs> either live or by recording. Okay. Of, and it can't be 
quite of the quality of uh, yours. Uh, congratulations on getting through round one. Good luck, and we'll yeah. talk to you soon, Mike Thank Conley. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with State Rep Mike Conley, who represents the 26th Middlesex District. That is Cambridge and Somerville. Thank you very much uh, for coming in. Uh, coming Thank up, you for having me. Coming up next, we're going to open the lines to you guys and ask you what you think about rent control. Uh, how are you getting by in the area of ever-rising rents and a housing crunch? Have you considered moving out of Boston or even Massachusetts because you can't afford to live around here? The number is 877-301-8970. You can call or text us at that number. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. Again, at noon today, uh, Larry Tribe, Lawrence Tribe, the professor emeritus, Harvard Law School, constitutional law expert extraordinaire, will be joined by another pretty smart lawyer, former judge, a federal judge, Nancy Gardner, to talk to us about all of the legal issues that are facing Donald Trump. Friday at the library, we'll have the attorney general. Next Tuesday at the library, the mayor, Commissioner Cox from the police department, was supposed to join us tomorrow, canceled this morning. And uh, says they'll reschedule. We'll let you know. We just spoke with Representative Connolly about rent control and their ballot question. Now I want to hear from you. Poll show it's widely popular with voters in Boston and statewide where rents have skyrocketed in recent years. According to a Commonwealth article, more than 60% of people, close to 70 actually, support this local option. It doesn't impose rent control. It gives power to local officials to impose it if they choose. We want to know what you think about the proposal. And regardless of what you think about the proposal, before or against it, do you have a rental nightmare or a rental success story from this September move-in cycle or any other time you'd like to share with us that might inform voters? Listen to this. We need to bring back rent control. I've been priced out of Massachusetts for six years. I desperately miss it. I'm a career fed nearly 20 years and can't even afford on my federal salary a small studio in Worcester. And he's granted part of the problem is the feds don't account for where you live mm-hmm. in terms of what they pay you. But he's in an apartment in Baltimore, 1,400 square uh feet, two bedroom, two bath, huge deck in the middle of the city, walking distance from Penn Station for $1,200 a month. You know, I don't mean to be a, a broken record. What so could I'm you only rent gonna, in Boston for $1,200 a month? I I'm only going to say it one more time. What? Do you believe the nerve of elected officials to say that that they who don't reside in a community in question, like Boston with Mayor Wu, should decide whether the leaders of that city uh, implement anything that relates to the... And by the way, if the issue that they want to act on affects people beyond their borders, then it's a whole different question. Then the state legislature should get involved. If Boston or any community wants to implement some form of rent control in their community... Why should well, they not be able to do it? I think the state legislature is kind of falling down on the job in almost every single solitary area. Why shouldn't they be able to open their books? Why shouldn't people get to know how they vote? Why should they be able to have uh, n- not do anything to this mad rush at the end of the year when people don't even get a chance uh, to to know what they're voting well, on? Well, they didn't even finish at the end of the fiscal year. They were the, I think, the uh, last have they state ever, in the country. Have they ever finished? I so. I mean, Under didn't Republicans we just, and Democrats. Didn't we just get an award for being – well, there's never been Republicans Least effective charge. legislator last yeah. year. And it's, and it's Democrats. I meant under a Republican governor, but yeah. you're right. No, yeah. No. I, I, when do, do, do we ever have a legislature run by Republicans? Maybe back oh, in do. the Pilgrim's days. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know. <laughs> Daniel and Waltham, thank you for calling. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for calling. 
Welcome. Hey, guys. How Hi. are you both doing? Good. Fine, thank good. you. Thank you for asking. It's always wonderful to get to speak on the show. So well, nice. thank you for um, calling. I, I, I was just, you know, I am a young person. I'm uh, under 30, like late 20s. You know, I've lived in Waltham now for four, four and a half years. And I'm starting to think about trying to buy a property, right? And it's just not financially feasible for me to buy a property because of interest rates being what they are and the property values being what they are. And, you know, the, the comment that the state senator was making that there really is very little evidence to support that a landlord isn't going to fund development in any of these areas. I just don't understand that because even even if they're going to hold that property for 15 years when the rent control becomes uh, effective in this new development that they're doing, that property is going to be worth so much money, mm-hmm. right? Like they will have made... Do you think people are not going to build properties in Boston? Like, I don't, I don't see that happening. I don't think the rent is the incentive. I think it's the property values. Well, I have to say, I, point. I think Connolly made a point with which I would agree. I don't think there's any way they could have crafted this question that would cause the real estate industry not to oppose it. The argument is, is uh, you know, the slippery slope argument, which is always the case. Uh, but uh, I think this is an or- this is an organizing opportunity for them to show their members that they are. Uh, uh, doing something. And so I, I, I tend to agree with you. But again, we're going to hear from the real estate people, assuming this question qualifies, and maybe they can make the case better than we perceive it to be. But Daniel, as always, thank you very awesome. much. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh, Daniel, we hung up. I thought you were done. If you want to call back, it's okay. It's okay. If you uh, want to call back and can get in, there's an open line probably for about 10 seconds. We're happy to finish the call. Yes. Go ahead. You know, Kim in Boston is arguing that this impacts businesses as well. She says her employer recently had to consolidate offices when the landlord in his second building raised the rent 70%. Mm. And something happened to a friend with a business in Salem. His landlord jacked up the rent and kicked him out. It is horrible, but you can't blame the landlords because if they can be making that much money, why wouldn't they? Well, well we should be clear. This doesn't affect commercial property, obviously. It's a residential thing. Right, it doesn't, but I'm just saying it might be a way to get some small business people on board, too, because a lot of small business people rent the space they're in, right? Susan Cambridge, you're next. Hi. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I think one thing missing from the conversation is a really well-researched and thought-out public campaign that addresses people's concerns about what's happened in the past for rent control, because when you say rent control... And those of us old enough to have lived through it in Cambridge um, had, you know, there were some really bad experiences. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the new proposed rent control is that. I also think there are other examples uh, across the country, but specifically in Dublin, Ireland, where they've had market-driven rent control with a, uh, a regular revisit to what the rules are if they're working um, and how to adjust accordingly based on the realities of the market. And so I think there are we, – we tend in the state to kind of think we know best, but we don't. And we just put stuff out there without it really being well-researched and explained to the public at large. Well, Susan, um, I would assume so – let me just say that uh, yeah. assuming they make it onto the ballot – one would hope that proponents are going to spend a lot of time doing that. I know the GBH newsroom will do it. I'm sure the Globe will do it. But you're totally right. Other similar experiences obviously should help inform how voters decide. My fear, and it's not just with this ballot question, but any ballot question, as I said to Mike Connolly, if the other side raises 20, 30 times more, the likelihood of them winning, no matter what the facts are, is overwhelming. That's, in my the the one huge downside 
of ballot campaigns. But uh, hopefully, uh, information will uh, be worth something too. Susan, thank you much for your uh, for your call. My partner and I just left Massachusetts, where we lived and worked for twenty years. We both work in the arts, nonprofit, education. Buying a house in Mass would never have been an option. The mortgage of our three-bedroom house in Vermont is half of the rent we were paying for a two-bedroom apartment in Boston. I mean, it really is insane uh, the, the amount of uh, of money people are getting for these for these apartments. I used to think it was just you know Austin Bright and the student ghetto where they dump like mm-hmm. nine kids in one crummy apartment and make a fortune. But now it seems to be. A, almost everywhere and it's amazing to me you can rent apartments without somebody coming over to examine them and make sure that they're you know up to snuff as it were andrew from stoneham by the way before you do that boston i assume people know this the three most expensive cities in the united states for rental housing are new york city jersey city jersey city because all the new yorkers go right right, across the river and it's the most beautiful view of manhattan i should say and boston and boston we're ahead of san San francisco Francisco. yeah it's huge andrew and stoneham thank you for calling Hi, I'm, I've been waiting for years to thank you guys for getting me through when Trump was elected. Oh, you're so um, nice. Thank you. I was I was devastated. <laughs> My brother helped me a little bit. You guys, I, I hadn't even really listened to you before, but uh, you guys got me through it. You well, made thank our you. day, Andrea. Yeah. Thank you. We, we hope we're not having to help you again <laughs> in a few months, Andrea. Could be the rate we're going. No, I don't think so. Okay, go I ahead. I don't think so. But so the, yeah, the rent control thing. I, like I was saying to the, the producer, um, yeah. I've been in every lane. My parents were landlords, um, very reasonable um, rent they would charge, and, and they kind of got screwed. They had somebody stay a year. They were in and out of court, um, stay a year rent-free. Like, somebody has to pay the mortgage when, when that eviction situation happens. Um, I was evicted in, in Southie, um, you know, a, a big-time flipper bought our little place and um so i was evicted but now i'm a landlord and um i don't know it's, it's a little more expensive than i think you guys are are giving credit for you know like again you're paying the mortgage you um anytime somebody leaves you you repaint you fix you're constantly trying to um you know maintain the, the property of course um it's complicated, and, and I know rent control, I don't even think it would affect small-time people. Like, we have two properties. How um, many units in your properties, Andrew? One's a single family and one's a two. Well, it wouldn't be affected under at least the well, single proposal. single family wouldn't be, effect- oh, wouldn't uh, be affected. The pro- wouldn't be yeah, affected I mean, by the proposal that is yeah. before uh, the would be before the voters. Yeah. But go ahead. Right. I just, um, you know, it, it's hard to be like, like, Way one side or the other, it's it's complicated, and and everybody's situation is different. Sure. And again, I was evicted. I was so disappointed, and you know, of course, I wanted to stay where I was, but um, you know, would have uh, you know, and and they jacked up the the price like unbelievably, so it was untouchable for me. Um, I try to keep that in mind. You know, we're we're pretty reasonable. Um, in, well, you know, in Andrea, you know, for whatever it's worth, while there's no cap in the statewide. Uh, ballot question that uh, Representative Connolly is advancing. Uh, he said he'd leave it up to cities and towns. The one city in town whose leaders have come in with a number is Boston. And based on inflation last year, it'd be somewhere in the neighborhood of 10%. And I have to say, if a landlord can't exist on a 10% increase, which is a lot higher than it's been in recent years, then maybe 
they should be in another business. You know, it isn't the Wu proposal is a very modest proposal. I think she'd admit it herself. And uh, um, so, there you but have also, it. Andrew, you're probably more, you sound like you may be more responsible than lots of people. I mean, not everybody's repainting the house and fixing everything that's gone uh, when they when they change over tenants. They're just not. And I and, and some of these people, as you said before, are raising the rents, you know, fifty percent, seventy percent. But thank Andrea, you, thanks for staying thank in touch with call. us. Please call again. <laughs> Somebody just rented a room, a room in a house in Cambridge. Guess how much they're paying for the room? How much? Fifteen hundred per month. Wow. <laughs> it's a little teeny tiny room. I don't know if they have to share the bathroom or what. But anyway, boy, I looked it up. By the way, it was Jimmy. The rent is too damn high. McMillan. <laughs> He founded the Rent is Too Damn High party, ran for mayor six times, ran for governor. This is interesting, though. He ran for the presidency of the United States, that is, in 2016, but he decided to withdraw. This is in 2015, I'm sorry, but the 2016 election. And he announced his withdrawal and retiring from politics. Again, Jimmy the Rent is Too Damn High. Okay, we did a nice job. Of course, but who did he endorse? Someone who cares a lot about keeping rents low. Who would that be? Donald Trump. Donald Trump, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So obviously he's a very so, clear thinker. I just want to tell you, Jim, I know you were a legal services lawyer fighting evictions in the South Bronx. I but was. A lot of the texts are about evictions. Here's yeah. another one, <clears throat> Cynthia from Boxford, who's been both a landlord and a renter. When we couldn't sell our first condo, we rented it out. Being a landlord can be tough. Our tenants stopped paying, got three months behind, and the rent at that time didn't even cover the mortgage. They finally paid up, but only because I'm a lawyer, I couldn't wait till the day that we could sell. What does that have to do with rent control? It has to do with people's fear about evictions. What does that have to do with rent control? Uh, that has to do with tenants in general. Well, it does. Whether it's rent control or not. So it's, but it's, the point is, I know it's been raised several times, it's not really relevant to this issue. It's relevant to the question of, is there a fair balance between the rights of landlords and tenants in Massachusetts? I can't speak to that. I can only say, as I said, the rent laws are much, much more favorable to tenants well, and eviction laws in New York City than comes they are in. here. One of the other big complaints about rent control back in 94 yeah. is that landlords would rent to pretty well-to-do people that they knew were going to be able to pay the rent and it wasn't helping out the people that maybe were borderline paying the rent because they always didn't want to risk that they get somebody Mm -hmm. like this who wouldn't who got behind the rent that's i think why it's why it's relevant by the way i am i know this will shock you i know that mayor Wu doesn't support this and others and and mike Connolly. it's on his ballot question i agree with you about means testing i think part of the campaign is going to be you're not even going to get in this apartment, even if there is rent control. They're going to let rich people in right. who know to have lawyers and agents, and they'll get. I, I I am with you. I think they should. I think it should be means tested. Let's go to Dartmouth with George. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome, George. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. Hey. Um, hi. Yeah. Uh, hi. Um, just a couple of things. Uh, one is I was uh, part of the original fight. Um, to get it on the ballot in Cambridge, which was not an easy fight. Mm-hmm. Um, as some of people may recall, uh, included like a sit-in at the Cambridge City Hall of over 500 people. Mm-hmm. It was a rollback of 5%, I believe, on existing rents, and then a percentage increase. It kept the character of Cambridge and Somerville mixed working class and student. Uh, for a long time. Um, and then I moved to New York. Uh, I was a graduate student there. I lived in the Bronx because I went to Fordham, mm-hmm. uh, Jim. And um, it rent control made it affordable for working families and for students. Um, 
2% increase. I think it was every couple of years. I had like a two bedroom apartment, huge apartment, like for less than 500 bucks a month. Um, and it just preserved the character of the city, both in Cambridge, Boston, and in New York. You know, George, can I interrupt you? Can I interrupt you to say I'm embarrassed? The most important thing that I can say about rent control is not just my experience in New York City, is my experience living in Cambridge. I moved to Cambridge before the repeal of rent control, and literally Uh within months, my street that was incredibly diverse in lots of ways, including economically, changed. And essentially, the neighborhood I live in is now all upper middle class people because of the repeal of rent control. So, George, you make a really important point. Thank you for calling. That's a really important point. I've said this a million times. Beacon Street, near where I live in in Brookline, used to be all uh, uh, rent control apartments, a lot of single mothers. Uh, There were regular, you know, working people in the schools. Night and day, it changed dramatically after rent control. Everything became condos. They sold for a fortune. I mean, you know, for a while, it's like nobody, none of the, nobody was working in Brookline. They were all like on trust funds or something. You know, one other thing that I haven't mentioned, we mentioned to, uh, I don't know what context we were discussing, but let me just say, if the, if the, if there is real opposition, uh, that is based on fact, and I, I don't know if it is or not, by the real estate industry and their concern about <coughs> X or Y, even though I think Wu and Connolly addressed a lot of these things, then why don't they sit down with legislative leaders and the advocates of rent control if they care about housing and tenants and try to work out some sort of a compromise? Their unwillingness, I assume, uh, maybe they're willing, but I haven't heard it, is an indication that doesn't matter what was on the ballot, they were going to oppose it and – to me, that's a problem. I think these things were carefully drafted and deserve serious consideration, even from anxious uh, landlords. Rick and Roslindale, hi. Hey, uh, so this is an issue of supply and demand. Sure. Uh, and I own a three family in Roslindale that I live in. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you address it with putting in or allowing accessory apartments? I can convert this to condos and sell them for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And then they're taken off the rental market. But I could, I have a big enough house, I could add a, an accessory apartment on there, if allowed. So it would be a lot easier for me to go the condo route and get rid of it than it would to do the accessory apartment, which would actually address the problem. And if that were permitted throughout the city, maybe it wouldn't solve the problem, but it would make a big dent in the problem, I'm convinced. Can I make a suggestion, Rick? When uh, Mayor Wu is with us next Tuesday, I would love you to call in and broach that with her. She has the ability to... Uh, propose amendments to her legislation on Beacon Hill. She should hear you out, and you should hear her well, out you know, and Rick, see where she goes. Remember there were all the stories for a while about the teeny tiny houses people had in their backyard? What happened with those? Wasn't there um, some buildings of those in, in parts my of Boston? Understand this, my understanding is there's some type of pilot program. Yeah. Now, I have not I think pursued that's right. that, so I may, may be ignorant on that. Yeah. But I, I do know that it is very difficult to if impossible, if not impossible, to do what I suggest. Would be Rick, better. really, I urge you, obviously, do what you will. I urge you to call in and talk to the mayor directly next Tuesday. I hope you do. And if not, we'll make a note. We'll try to broach your issue on your behalf. But try to call. Well, Rick, thanks for the call. Of course, you know why we're in this mess to begin with. Why? Condos. Yeah. I mean, everybody used to live in apartments and rent apartments. And then suddenly you could buy apartments as condos. And everybody gets thrown out of their apartments. Well, not just condos. Absentee owners of condos. That's another thing. You drive yeah. downtown or through the seaport late at night. You know how many lights you see on almost none because a lot of people people, foreign countries exactly or other wealthy people are buying property here because it's so uh, wildly valuable eight seven why why am i giving the number chris and marble you have 60 seconds 
uh, quickly. Hi. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. Hey. How you doing? We're good. Fine, Thank thanks. You. So uh, I'm a landlord for many years, and I'll tell you, I've probably been through 30 evictions over 25 years. And, I, you know, it has a lot to do with rent control because it's so hard and takes so long and costs so much money to get someone out. You have to make sure you're getting market rent. I have other people who, you know, charge far below market to their tenants, which is what they want to do. But when the, when the price of a roof in the last three years has gone from 10000 to 20000 or a plumber won't show up to install a stove unless you're going to pay him $615, uh, everything has gone way up. As yeah, a but Chris, fact, Chris, because we're short on time, I, I want to yeah. be clear about something. You said it's because of rent control. Rent control hasn't existed for 29 years in Massachusetts. Why is it because of rent control? Well, what I'm saying is if you're going to suppress rent below market, you're not going to be suppressing the landlord or the property owner's expenses below market. So obviously there's a problem there. Who is proposing 10% roughly? Is that enough? Well, that's that's 6% up to 10 with inflation. So that's a very good program, but that's just a Trojan horse because you're not – you're not enacting that. What, we're, what the ballot question would do would just eliminate uh, rent control being illegal in mass, and then the municipalities can do whatever that they is want. Correct. They can bring that, that force correct. into the fort, that is correct. and then the soldiers come out, and it's completely different than what they're selling the general public. That's typical. Chris, we're out of time. I'm sorry to have to cut you off. Please call us again, and we'll, let's talk more next time we address this subject. Thanks. Okay, coming up after the news, new, new news, that is, retired federal judge Nancy Gertner and Harvard University professor of law emeritus Lawrence Tribe with more than 90 criminal charges against the former president. Should he be constitutionally barred from holding public office to help us make sense of all the legal troubles facing the former president? And Tribe has an incredible idea about the war in Ukraine as well. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7. GBH, Tribe, and Gertner are next. Welcome to our number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim. Hello again, Marjorie. We're back at the library tomorrow. We'll be back there on Friday as well. On Friday, the Attorney General, Andrea Campbell, will join us for an hour of Ask the AG. A week from tomorrow, the Mayor, Mayor Wu, will join us for an hour of Ask the Mayor at the library. We're joined now on Zoom by Lawrence Tribe, the Carl M. Loeb University Professor of Constitutional Law Emeritus at Harvard University. And Nancy Gartner, retired federal judge, senior lecturer at Harvard Law School, regular BPR contributor. We're going to talk about some of the legal issues confronting Donald Trump, and we will also talk about a matter that could have profound effect on Ukraine's ability to uh, protect its democracy. Larry Tribe, Nancy Gartner, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you both uh, for being here. So I just want to talk about this morning, uh, Trump showed up in court in New York City, and before he went into the courtroom, he called Letitia James, the Attorney General, a racist, and he referred to this case as the biggest witch hunt in history, or words to that effect. Here's a little bit more about what he said before entering the courtroom for the start of this civil trial against him, his eldest sons, and their companies. There was no crime. The crime is against me. Because we have a corrupt district attorney, but we have a corrupt attorney general. And it all comes down from the DOJ. They're totally coordinated this in Washington because I'm leading. I'm the leading candidate. I'm leading Biden by 10 points. And I'm leading the Republicans by 50 and 60 points. That's pretty much, they say, over. I never accept that, but they say it's over. 
This has to do with election interference, plain and simple. So let's start with you, Judge Gertner. Are you surprised that Trump showed up at all to sit in the courtroom? Maybe it was to make the statement. I don't know. What do you think of his coming to the courtroom? Well, I mean, now that I heard his statement, I'm not surprised that he showed up. He doesn't have to show up in a civil case. He could have. He didn't have to go at all. And it's clear when you listen to the last line about election interference that he wants to fold this narrative into the narrative that got him in this trouble to begin with, which is, you know, this is in election interference, just like they did in in 2020. It um, uh, it, it resonates with what the Judge Chutkin in the election criminal case in D.C. is going to have to do, which is to figure out how to gag Trump in the civil case in New York. That isn't an issue. It's a judge trial. So that isn't an issue. And he therefore feels he has a free runway uh, to say whatever he wants about the judge and the attorney general. I think, Judge Gertner, you missed something. The judge in the Washington case is also racist and deranged, which explains <laughs> what's happening there, uh, obviously. Right. So, right. Uh, Larry Tribe, if you're dying to comment on that, feel free. But can we get to my obsession, which I think is, I hope, one of yours, this 14th Amendment Section 3 thing. For the three people who have been living under a rock, let me read a the relevant portions <laughs> of Section 3. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or hold any office under the United <laughs> States who shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. You and a guy who used to be the darling of the right, at least in the judicial world, uh, Judge Ludig, have uh, taken the position that this language is self-enforcing, which means, at least to me, you don't need a uh, determination by Congress. You don't need a, a court ruling that it is self-enforcing. Can you explain in Cliff Notes fashion what that means to mere mortals, Larry Tribe? Well, you do need a ruling by somebody. There's nothing in the Constitution that sort of steps up out of the page and grabs you by the throat. So calling it self-enforcing is a little bit of a misnomer. What that really means is that like everything else in the 14th Amendment, like the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, uh, this doesn't need congressional legislation to bring it to life, but it does need somebody. And the somebody is going to be either a Secretary of State, many of them have been sued because under their state's laws, they're not supposed to put anyone on the primary ballot who fails to meet the eligibility requirements for national office. In this case, those requirements include not only being 35 and a natural-born mm -hmm. citizen and not having run two previous times and won the presidency, but also not having taken an oath of office to the Constitution and then turned against it and tried to overthrow it by an insurrection. Those secretaries of state are uniformly saying, not me, not me, I'm not going to do this. So they're all being sued. They're being sued in the highest court of Minnesota because the laws there allow voters to bring suits directly there in order to keep disqualified people off the ballot. They're being sued in the lower courts, in a Denver uh, municipal court, actually, uh, in the Colorado case. They're being sued in the Court of Claims, uh, in the state of Michigan, in each of these cases, the people bringing the suits are eligible plaintiffs under state law. But in all of them, they do not have standing under federal law. 
What that means is that if Trump wins all these cases, and he might, it'll never even get to the Supreme Court of the United States because the losers will be ordinary citizens who, under federal law, don't have standing. It's only if one of these state highest courts says, okay, we're reading this language, we understand what it means, we've read all the scholarship, it really does disqualify Trump. It's only if one of them says that, that Trump then gets to review that decision in the U.S. Supreme Court, where I don't think you have to be a wizard to figure out that the court is not likely to be sympathetic to the plaintiffs. You know, representing the non-lawyers out there that are listening, and I'm a, not a lawyer, I, I, I've learned a lot about this 14th Amendment. It, Judge Gertner goes back to the Civil War and the Confederacy. Tell people that don't know this history here. Well, it was, it was, um, there's really, people should go read the history because it's really quite extraordinary. It's extraordinary in terms of, uh, you know, what, what motivated it. And then when it failed to actually disqualify Confederate officers, what happened. Um, so the, it was a way of disqualifying a, a part and parcel of the enforcement mechanism of the 14th Amendment to enforce the 14th Amendment uh, had to require the disqualification of people who were Confederate officers, Confederate officials who had sworn an oath to the United States, to the, to the Confederacy rather. And then after the war, uh, tried to run for office or, or achieved office rather uh, in in the Confederacy, and this was to stop that from happening. It's really a simple principle that if you took up arms against your country, you can't then uh, be an official of your country. Many of the Confederate soldiers, however, of the officers rather, were it was a broad amnesty, which uh, then enabled them to run for office, and and when they got in, dismantle some of the. Uh, what was essentially a biracial democracy in many of the states that had uh, that had been in the former confederacy. So uh, it was a it was intended to prevent that. Ultimately, the political will failed. But the point is that even though there was an amnesty for some Confederate uh, uh, officers, in fact, not the the provision of the Fourteenth Amendment never changed. It continues to be what it says, and th- there really is an extraordinary group of you know, not just um, liberal scholars, um, but conservative scholars who believe that the language is what the language is. It says disqualification should be uh, a disqualification. Just following up with Larry's point, it's the same thing as if somebody who's 28 wanted to run for president. The, the secretary of state would look at his birth certificate and say, you don't, you're not qualified. End of discussion. Likewise, if Trump goes into those secretary of state's offices and says, you know, I'm Donald Trump, uh, I have 91 counts against me. I have, you know, I've obviously some participation in the insurrection on January 6th. And the Secretary of State could say goodbye. You know, speaking you know, of, you know, I had some involvement in the insurrection. How about the argument, Larry Tribe, that the Department of Justice through Jack Smith could have but chose not to indict Trump for insurrection? Does that not carry some weight in terms of the this? Uh, 14th Amendment argument? Actually, it doesn't. It's neither necessary nor sufficient to be convicted of insurrection or indeed of anything. Uh, The reason is that this provision was designed as a backstop in circumstances where the executive branch might be disinclined to prosecute. 
Andrew Johnson was the president of the United States when this became part of the Constitution. Far from having a Justice Department that wanted to prosecute anybody, he was in the business of pardoning Confederates. But lest we think that this is all just history, and history is important, but for people like Nancy and me, history is certainly not everything. This could have been a provision that had a sunset clause. It could have That's expired. A lot of people try to argue, oh, this is only about the Civil War. It doesn't matter anymore. We're not in a Civil War. But nonsense. This is something that was deliberately designed for a constitution that would last for the ages. And it was not supposed to just sunset. It's not just about the Confederacy. It's about what would happen if ever again there were people who either tried to set up an alternative government and thereby wage war on the United States or who tried to overturn the central process by which our government makes a transition every four years from one presidency to the next. And when we had a president, finally, who said, and I quote, I will terminate the Constitution if I have to, to hold on to power. And when he made it clear that that wasn't just words, that is when he fomented a violent insurrection, was part of a plot to have uh, fake ballots, all of this, of course, has to be determined by some secretary of state or some court. But that kind of president was never supposed to get another chance at dismantling our democracy once and for all. You know, Larry Tribe, but just as an aside, while I'm looking at you, in addition to being America's premier constitutional law expert, in my estimation, do you know you're also a fashion influencer? I just realized I'm oh, looking at you yeah. with the T-shirt and the jacket. Were you watching Anderson Cooper Friday night? <laughs> he was wearing the Larry Tribe outfit. Are you aware of this or no? No, I'm not. But if, yeah. I, if I look like Anderson Cooper, I, I would do it. Well, exactly. I, I, I consider that a win. It's a three-quarter so thing, Jim. That's a three-quarter thing. I love thing. the look. talk about. Nancy yeah. Gardner, can we start? I promise we're going to move past the 14th Amendment in a second. So for those who are hanging their hat on the 14th Amendment but saying we're not going to get there with that, some are also hanging their hat on a jail cell. And my understanding is unless – uh, there is an insurrection finding in some fashion, apart from the 14th Amendment. Donald Trump can not only run from a jail cell, should he be sentenced to such, before November of next year, he can serve from a jail cell. Is that true? Absolutely. <laughs> I think that, that uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, I think the, the problem is we are in uncharted territories. I don't know how many times people can say that. I mean, this man has single-handedly, you know, determined all the gaps in the in the Constitution that we are dealing with. But yes, he could serve. Okay. Um, I mean, he could serve unless it depends on what he was charged with. The language of the 14th, what he's in convicted of, the language of the 14th Amendment simply says, took part in a rebellion. Doesn't say convicted of, mm -hmm. doesn't say insurrection, right. took part in a rebellion. No, wait, Nancy, it says insurrection or rebellion. It says they took a note to support the Constitution and then to, and gave it. No, Larry, I'm reading it. So am I, Nancy. It does say, I'm reading it too, shall have engaged so in insurrection engage in or, rebellion. or rebellion. You're right, or rebellion. Okay. But so okay. the rebellion is a much broader term. Sure. 
Can we move on to the gag order? Of course we can. So we we started this by saying that the foreign president went went before the cameras this morning, called Letitia James a racist. He calls lots of people racist. A, a, a black people seem to be a, a lot of racist. You know, that everything is a witch hunt. The judge is deranged. Everybody's deranged. Uh, Millie, the former uh, chief of the Pentagon there in the military, uh, he should be killed and he may be a witness. Millie may be a witness against mm-hmm. Trump. It goes on and on and on. So it does seem to me... This is a problem, you know, de- de- pe- in people's minds, um, impugning the, the the Justice Department and then intimidating witnesses. It, it's all over the place. So, Lawrence Tribe, what do we do about that? Well, Marjorie, it's a, it's a serious problem because the legal system has not in the past had to deal with this directly. Uh, there are cases in which lawyers are subject to a gag, but the defendant him or herself, does have freedom of speech. He certainly can criticize the prosecution. He can say, it's got it in for me. He can say the judge is unfair. But Donald Trump has gone beyond that. For example, just within the last two days, he said about Letitia James, the attorney general, not just calling her a racist, but said somebody should get her. Now, when, when you say that about the judge, or about witnesses, when he says that Millie, who is likely to be one of possible, several possible key witnesses uh, in the federal prosecution, when he says that Millie should be executed, we know from the way those people who are his followers, the, the MAGA crowd, we know how they take his words. They take his words and then act on them. Uh, he has celebrated the attack on Paul Pelosi he said that the people who protest him and his crowds should be manhandled and taken out in a stretcher. You can't have a system of justice that allows someone to do that. So that if you are Judge Chutkin, you've got a real problem because you know that anything that you will do that restricts his freedom of speech, even if it's not an exercise of any right that he has, you don't have a right to intimidate witnesses or to undermine the process of justice. Anything that he can call a violation of his freedom of speech will simply give him more opportunity to politicize the whole process, just as he did today when he showed up in uh, New York for his trial. He used it as a platform for a speech. He will raise money. His supporters will be on his side. So she's got a problem of how as a creative judge to to really effectuate a restriction on his speech. She has suggested that she might accelerate the trial. That is, every time he threatens somebody, she might say, well, I'm going to limit the amount of time you have to poison the jury pool and to intimidate witnesses. You're not happy with your current trial. You wanted it to be postponed further. I'm going to make it happen sooner. But Nancy, uh, as an experienced federal judge, is much better situated than I am to say what ought to be done. What what would you do, Nancy, if he were in your court and you were trying Donald Trump on the four very serious felony charges that Special Counsel Smith has brought against him in this in this four count indictment? And then he conducted himself the way he has so far. 
He's taken over your show. He's now asking. I'm not happy about it either. Let me tell you, I'm not happy about it at all. I I promise I won't do it again. Okay, so do some judging. I think think Tuckin has no choice but to enter a gag order as against Trump. Um, Ordinarily, you get the. the, I mean, the, the the case law is clear, and it certainly makes sense that you that the court is a, is a, is not like you know cable news you can't just start shouting at one another you can't say anything you can't there are rules that he has to follow and the rules that he has to follow in the courtroom can't be undermined by what he does outside i think she will enter a a, a, a narrow order um, i'm looking at some of the language now that the statements that are to to not have statements that are disparaging inflammatory or intimidating um, is one category. In other words, he can't start um, encouraging his followers to threaten people and, you know, and, and affect violence on them. Also, the government was asking for statements about the identity, testimony, or credibility of prospective witnesses. It, I mean, in short, he it's not just, as we often see in these gag order situations, trying your case to the media and hoping to poison the jury. This is actually putting witnesses at risk. The kinds of things that he's saying fundamentally undermine the orderly administration of justice. So she's going to enter a gag order. The question will be how she enforces it. One way to enforce it will be, as Larry was saying, which is hastening the trial date. Um, The other way, frankly, would be uh, financial sanctions, which isn't going to make much difference. And the other way would be to revoke his bail. And that will be a moment. But she could do that. Judge Gardner, I know I'm sure uh, Larry Tribe has more questions for you, but if I can get a question in here <laughs> for a second. Speaking of uh, trial dates, why does uh, I don't get why Powell, the lawyer, Sidney Powell and Cheeseborough won an early trial date in this Georgia thing, which obviously is a state prosecution scheduled for October 23rd. They're enforcing their speedy trial rights. I don't get it. What am I missing? Well, ordinarily, sort of lesser figures in a uh, criminal case will seek to sever their case from everyone else. That's what they want to do because they they don't want to be in the pot with uh-huh. okay. uh, we, you know with Donald Trump. Um, uh, that off that's often a severance motion that doesn't work. In by asking for a speedy trial the way they did, they got their severance. They had to be severed from the rest because the arrest didn't were going to claim those rights. Um, so they want to see if there would be a trial in which they are not. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in which they are just not the lead players in the hopes that a jury would, uh, would, would, would hang or a jury would acquit them. And that would be a significant moment for the rest of the case. Now, the rest of the case, it would not be a significant legal moment, right? The rest of the case stands on its own, but it would be a significant, um, it would certainly be a significant political moment. And for the rest of the defendants, uh, they get a chance to see the, a preview of the government's yeah. case which can help them as well. That's the voice of former federal judge Nancy Gertner. She is joined by uh, Lawrence Tribe, professor emeritus from Harvard Law School. You know, I didn't know there was any such thing as a jury study, um, Judge Gertner, which you have talked about regarding the January 6th case going on in Washington, D.C. What's, what's that about? Well, that's the, I just saw that um, uh, actually in preparing for this uh the the defendants, Trump wants to do a jury study. Now, that's actually a, a good thing for defendants to do to find out the attitudes in the jury pool to oftentimes to test how much pretrial publicity there have been. Uh, I used to do that when I was a criminal defense lawyer. You get some sense of who the audience is. 
But the government understands or the government fears that what Trump is going to do is use a jury study as an opportunity to intimidate jurors um, or the study will be so um, uh, skewed that the results that, that, you know, that the government then will have to be attacking the study in court. You know, let's say the question instead of an open ended question is, don't you think that Trump is the best president in the world? Uh, you know, you something like that. Now, of course, the judge would then, you know, not uh, base his her decisions on the jury study. But the fear is that they would do such a study. It would be wildly skewed. It would be wildly inappropriate. Um, and, and that will be part of his publicity campaign. So the government is asking for the judge to monitor that study, to, to get the methodology in advance and the questions. I've never seen that before. But it says something about how fundamentally uh, Trump can try to undermine this trial. He and also wants the evidence so he can try to get the trial, uh, trial moved. He says he wants it to go to West Virginia, which he calls politically unbiased, which he won by 40 points, by the way, <laughs> for whatever it's worth in the last uh, presidential election. You know, as we're speaking, our colleagues, Larry Tribe, yeah. just told us the Supreme Court on Monday, I'll read from Reuters, turned away a case involving whether Trump should be disqualified from the 2024 election under constitutional provision, the 14th Amendment thing. And it appears, uh, I don't know if you know about this because it's so uh, current, uh, that he was, the lower court finding he lacked standing to sue Trump to disqualify him. As far as you know, is that the reason for the Supreme Court rejection that this Castro guy doesn't have standing? Yeah, there are several cases that are on their way to the court where the plaintiff plainly didn't have standing in the court below didn't have jurisdiction. So all of these kind of nuisance cases brought in the wrong court or by the I wrong see. person uh, are going to be tossed out. Trump, of course, is going to say, see, now the courts have already ruled for me. He's going to say the Supreme Court has ruled for me. So it's not going to none of these PR statements on his part are going to help him in court. But he wants to be tried not in court. He wants to be tried by the people uh, in an election and he's going to say that he won whether he did or not uh, we know the we know the playbook uh, stop the steal is going to happen in advance unless he is convinced that he's won the popular vote uh, and the electoral college you so know by the way just that you know just as, as an aside on this larry tribe before we get to your incredibly interesting research and potentially consequential research around Ukraine. I, I assume you both read the Washington Post editorial without naming you, basically criticizing your position on this thing and so the 14th Amendment and ba- this morning or yesterday, whenever it was, and basically saying, well, the solution is voting. But they're sort of ignoring that when he loses, he doesn't acknowledge he lost. So, I mean, it's almost exactly. nonsensical, right? Yeah, I mean, Kermit Roosevelt from the University of Pennsylvania yeah. wrote a very nice piece in which he made all of these points and said, this, when a solution is voting for somebody who says he can't lose and who won't accept no for an answer, that's not much of an argument. Besides, the whole idea it, that this provision of the 14th Amendment is anti-democratic is nonsense. It is part of democracy to say that if you try by violence to overturn democracy, you don't get another chance. That's part of democracy. It's written into the rules. The (laughs) section of the 14th Amendment that Nancy and I were both reading from is the democracy-protecting clause of the Constitution. 
happens to be put in terms of disqualification. We're talking with Lawrence Tribe, a constitutional law professor emeritus at Harvard University, and Nancy Gertner, former federal judge and senior lecturer at Harvard Law School. Jim just mentioned, uh, Professor Tribe, uh, the piece uh, you wrote in The Atlantic, I think it was, about especially with with Ukraine's fate hanging in the balance and some people losing their appetite for funding it, uh, about $300 billion in frozen Russian bank assets. What did you say? Well, it wasn't the the main piece. It's not something that I I happened to write in the Atlantic. It's basically a 200-page report that a bunch of extremely talented lawyers at Kaplan, Hecker, and Fink wrote with me after a six-month study of the domestic and international laws that are all about what to do with the assets that get frozen, central bank assets, sovereign assets of a country that commits war crimes and aggression and annexes a neighbor. And the assets get frozen pursuant to various sanction regimes. What do you do with it? Do you just let it sit there? The 300 billion, this study that I oversaw, the 300 billion dollars exists in all of the G7 countries, 35 billion here in the the United States, another whole bunch of money in other countries, Canada, um, the, the European Union. Letting it just sit there is kind of a tragedy, but it turns out that in 1977 law, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act gives the President of the United States the clear and unambiguous authority to transfer those frozen assets to the victim of the illegal aggression. That means to transfer Putin's money to Ukraine to help it defend itself and rebuild itself. And what this report concludes, and it's already making waves throughout the world, um, and I'm hoping that it will actually move the Biden administration to exert a leadership position. What this report proves is that first, American law, the laws already enacted by Congress, not the new laws that Congress is purportedly debating, but not very likely to pass, and international law, all of that authorizes the seizure and transfer of these assets to help rebuild the victim of illegal aggression and genocide. And I'm very much hoping that the, the Biden administration acts on these recommendations. Just there to put articles and op-eds that I wrote about it. Just to put it in context, by the way, when you were reading during the whole uh, shutdown talk a couple of days ago and uh, Speaker McCarthy excluding any Ukrainian funding, uh, Biden was only looking for roughly $25 billion. That's one-twelfth of the amount of money that's been frozen and would be available under the tribe argument here, which is huge, But what I don't understand, though, can, can President Biden act by himself with the money that we have, or do all the countries have to come to an agreement about this to give back the money? Well, we suggest it would be much more effective if it were multilateral. Uh-huh. And I've spoken with Christia Freeland, the uh, Deputy Prime Minister of Canada. She's with me on this. She's speaking to her counterparts in Italy and France and Germany. It would be better to act together. But under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, once the president declares a Ukraine-related emergency, it has already done that, he has unilateral he power. Take the money out of American central banks, the sovereign 
central Russian bank money and transfer it to Ukraine. We recommend a mechanism to do that, which would be multilateral, which would involve an escrow, which would involve protections against uh, corruption, which is a perennial problem in many countries, including Ukraine. Uh, but this is an unfinished story, and it's certainly something that, that matters a great deal to me. Uh, that's the voice of Larry Tribe, uh, Professor Murs, a Harvard Law School, former federal judge Nancy Gertner is with uh, Larry Tribe here. One last question from me, both of you. This is not in your brilliant legal capacities, but as just citizens of this country. There's almost not a day that Marjorie and I don't talk about the following, is that roughly half of the voters in this country appear to be ready to vote for a guy who has been found liable for sexual abuse of another human being, E. Jean Carroll, not to mention credibly accused of harassment or sexual abuse from another couple of dozen women, been found uh, uh, liable uh, for massive fraud uh, by this uh, judge in the civil proceeding in New York City. A cheat, some would call him. Uh, Credibly (laughs) accused of insurrectionist-related activity, an attempt in the English language to overthrow the government of the United States of America. Yet, Half the voters say he's our guy. Starting with you, Nancy Gertner, what, what, when you sit home at night and think about this beyond all the legal arguments, what does that say to you about this country in 2023? I'm, I'm not sure what it says about this country right now, Jim, because I believe that it's an abstraction when you, when you, when you, you know, poll people now. And to the extent, I, I just, I just think it's an abstraction. I'm not sure that that's where people will be at the time of the actual vote. The best measure of that has been the elections since Trump won in 2016, when people actually had to go into the ballot box and did that's not true. vote for him or his, you know, like candidates. So um, uh, I think it's an easy thing to say now. I'm uh, the even if it was less than 50 percent, even if it was 40 or 30 or 20, it still would be troubling since he is as the days go on more clear it's more and more clear that he is an authoritarian that he's a character like we have never seen hit the national stage and were he to win the government would be unrecognizable so it, i mean it it doesn't matter what the numbers are right. i don't think he will win because i don't think that people will i mean i think that the noise is too great here around him even if people don't believe what we believe um but it is a troubling that anyone should be supporting him now at all. What, Larry Tribe, what's your reflection on that, uh, that moment in time today? It's very similar to Nancy's, except that I wouldn't use the word troubling. I would say nauseating. I would say very deeply, profoundly distressing that there are millions of people, and we always, you know, there are always going to be some people who can be influenced by propaganda, who believe what they're told, who love the idea of, you know, turning over their freedom to a strong man and saying, making scapegoats of others and so on, but that there are tens of millions of people who now among our fellow countrymen, you know, who feel that way is really, it's very, very scary and depressing. Like Nancy, I don't think he's going to win, but he certainly won't admit that he's lost. There will be violence. People say, you know, if he were taken off the ballot, there'd be violence. There's going to be violence when he loses, if we are right that he will lose. And the fact that there are people out there 
ordinary people that that I would be happy to talk to if I encounter them on the street who who seem to have their heads screwed on straight, who don't seem to be wearing, you know, tin hats that are absorbing <laughs> magic rays from the universe, who who believe this stuff is very scary. And, and it reminds me that that uh, the human species is far from perfect. I mean, we are rapidly destroying the planet. And on top of it, so many of us believe in crazy myths. Um, so let's, we have that's the message is we can't give up. We have to keep trying. Whether you're depressed or whether you're just distressed or whether you're nauseated, we have to set that aside and keep working uh, to make a difference. Amen. Larry Tribe, Nancy Gardner, can't thank you enough. We really appreciate yeah. your time. Thank you very much. It was great to talk to you both. Much appreciate you taking the time. Thank, thank you. you. We, we've been speaking. Thank you. We've been speaking with Lawrence Tribe, the Carl M. Loeb University Professor of Constitutional Law Emeritus at Harvard University, and Nancy Gertner, retired federal judge and senior lecturer at Harvard Law School. Coming up, we're going to talk with Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Young. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're live at the library tomorrow with Police Commissioner Cox. Friday, the Attorney General joins us for an hour at the library. And next Tuesday, Mayor Wu joins us for an hour at the library. We're joined now by on Zoom by Shirley Young. She's business columnist for the Boston Globe, host of the wildly popular Say More podcast, and a GBH contributor. Hey there, Shirley. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Good morning. Hey, Shirley. Great to talk to you. So let's start with the latest episode of your terrific podcast, Jim just mentioned, Say More, where you talk about the struggling industry of crypto uh, with software uh, engineer Molly White. Of course, it's perfect timing uh, because a very big trial involving crypto is starting this week. So here she is, Molly White. But then, of course, when things started to go south with FTX and there were doubts about the solvency of the exchange... I definitely became very concerned when Sam Bankman-Fried was tweeting that everything is fine, assets are fine, because that's something we see in the crypto world a lot, just before something goes really, really badly. And so for me, that was like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, things are about to go really bad here. What what she have to say about uh, all of us that may be thinking, well, not me, but many people about thinking about the future with crypto? So Molly White uh, runs this very popular blog and newsletter, and she is known as one of the world's biggest crypto skeptics. And she has been writing uh, for years now about uh, you got to be careful about FTX founder, Sam Bakeman fried You got to be careful about this whole cryptocurrency market. And she's really having an, as I told, you know, as, as I told you, or to, I told you so 
I told you so moment right now uh, ahead of um, his trial tomorrow. I mean, he's one of the FTX was one of the biggest companies got all, you know, he's the guy with the, the curly hair, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the big curly hair. And, and oh. you know, you can't you can't tell that he's a the CEO of a crypto company. Right. Did you um, see did you see 60 Minutes by any chance last night? They had know. a picture. They had a picture of his digs down there in the Bahamas. It was unbelievable. It was like three or four floors, all these glass windows. All, you know, he's all, living in jail now. He's, he's not living, living in jail in the now, Bahamas, but, but that's right. where yeah. he was. That's where he went to in the Bahamas. It was like something out of, you know, the King of Siam or something. Did it, by the way, did 60 Minutes mention or did Molly White mention you? I've read a lot of things that say he's got a lot of crypto hidden in his hair. Is that, is there any, <laughs> do we know if it's well, any that truth? Is possible. <laughs> Michael, that is possible. Michael Lewis, the great writer, has just written a biography about him and Spent a lot of time. Uh, that's guess, right. Yeah, spent a lot of time with them. So that's what they were talking about. By the way, anyway. we should say so for those, uh, we are surely not crypto experts uh, by a long <laughs> shot. But we should just say what they, what is alleged is that one of his operations, SBF, stole billions from FTX, the customer funds, for his personal use and to cover huge losses. And they say, which is incredible, but I guess merited, that if he's convicted of all these charges, he could end up in jail for the rest of his life. 31-year-old, well, zilli- former zillionaire. And he's implicated, his, his parents are implicated in some of these efforts as Big well. Big-time professors. At Stanford. Right. Yeah. I mean, the government has called this one of the biggest frauds mm-hmm. ever. And um, and so Molly White talks about, you know, she's been a long-time cryptic skeptic. And I asked her, what kind of impact will the, what it, you know, she's going to be looking at his defense. Uh, you know, how does he explain what happened? Um, and... Um, but but I asked her, like, what kind of impact will this trial have on the crypto market? Uh, will it make everyone wise up or or be more careful or or be more uh, uh, change their ways? And she said, no, surprisingly, she said, no, she doesn't think it will have any impact because she thinks that crypto companies are very good at compartmentalizing. Uh, you know, the bad apples. Oh, that, that's Sam Bakeman Freed. That's not us. You know, we're, we're good here. And, um, and she doesn't think that this means the end of, uh, the crypto market. She thinks that it will continue. It may not be. Uh, as big uh, as it was once, um, you know, supposed to be, it's supposed to change the way we, uh, you know, use money. Um, you know, she, she thinks that there'll be some form of cryptocurrency, um, digital, she thinks digital currency, the idea of online banking, uh, you know, digital currency, that will last, that will continue, but, but not, not as, uh, but not cryptocurrency as originally envisioned. So did you ask her, I mean this seriously, I know it's going to come out like a joke. Are people like Tom Brady, who obviously did no vetting of anything before he did television commercials for Bankman Freed promoting it, who, uh, which one might argue caused some people who would otherwise not have invested to invest and lose money? Is there a liability on the part of these celebrities who chose not to give a damn except how much they're getting paid? I think there are paid? lawsuits. Aren't there lawsuits yeah, against no, them but, already? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm thinking so. I mean, they they were used to market um, crypto, uh, something, and they used their fame to to get more exactly. investors. And so, um, I mean, she thinks the future of cryptocurrency it will be a very speculative asset. You know, it's almost like you're you're going to Vegas. You know, I, I'm gonna place a bet on this very high risk uh part of the market it, it's not for everyday investors you know i know absolutely nothing about it so i shouldn't voice my opinion but i will anyway i mean i don't understand anything about crypto and bitcoin it's one of the things i just can't 
at all grasp. Having said that, remember we talked about NFTs, a parallel kind of thing? Yeah, non-fungible, when, when, tangible, tokens, whatever they're tokens, tokens, yeah. When, when Brady was selling or buying or doing something that, like that. What happened to they're those? They're worth like nickels and dimes yeah. now, by the way. So I, I, Molly Watt, I know she's the expert. I can't wait to hear this. Well, she had a but line I, from the podcast, which really resonated with me, that it was basically about separating people from their hard-earned money. It was, that was called in, fraud. That's yeah. what this guy's I on mean, trial for. It didn't seem... Yeah, do you know he came to visit Mitch McConnell and he's supposed to bring a suit? This is from 60 Minutes uh. last night. And he shows, he's got his cargo shorts and his dirty T-shirt. I guess Lewis says to him, have you got a shirt to wear underneath that suit? No. I Who's don't know Lewis? How. Michael Lewis is right in the oh, back. Oh, Michael Lewis. Oh, he got a shirt. No, he didn't have a shirt. He was going in with his with his crummy, dirty T-shirt to meet with Mitch McConnell. Yeah, he was also meeting, obviously, with John Fetterman based upon <laughs> that. So we're talking to Shirley Leung. Shirley, one of my favorite pieces in the Globe in recent days is a piece by the, I don't even know what his first name is. Cool Daniel is his cool. last name. Daniel, Daniel cool. cool. I sit next to He sits oh, uh, a couple desks away oh, from God. me. Yes. What's lost when Subway takes twice as long? And, you know, we all know about what, you know, it means for the economy and all this sort of stuff. He did a deeper dive into the personal consequences, real life consequences of never knowing how long the tea is going to take or knowing that it's going to take twice as long as it should. Fill in a few blanks for us. I love this story. Yeah. So he talked about how, you know, what happens when your red line ride uh, takes two hours now instead of an hour. And um, you know, you don't get to see your kids as much. You don't get to walk your dogs. It's it's just like you this every day. It's hard enough uh, to kind of, you know, live and work in Boston. Um, but then this kind of added in, in almost indignity, right? That That you can't even, you know, you're just trying to do your job, get on the subway, go to work, but it's so slow that you can't, um, you know, spend more time with your kids. Really? You, you but it's serious. Uh, I never even thought, I mean, it's so obvious. Right. Yeah. And they don't think it's going to get better. That was one of the really depressing little nuggets in this. There's not faith in the system. I mean, the, the riders don't yeah. believe it. Well, would you believe it if you're a regular rider? I don't know what Boston's going to do. we got to do something. You can't, you can't, it can't go on like this, can it? Well, the red line, where I'm a red line rider, uh, I, I happen to be on the Ashmont line and, and that will be closed for two weeks in October. And, um, and I actually welcome the closure because it is so slow. I, I mean, it is, uh, I, I think one time my son takes the train now to go to BC High and I think we've got one of these iPhone trackers on him to see where he is at all time and our phone tracker I should say and um, so when he's on the red line during a slow zone I think the app thinks he's walking that's oh how God. slow oh he's my going God. and so um, and so it's very slow it, I mean for me like uh, for me we we live in Milton we can my, my son normally could just walk to the train trolley uh and then from the trolley the Mattapan trolley can take the, go to Ashmont station and take the red line in but i have zero faith zero confidence uh in uh the red line right now that and the, and the subway system that i actually drive him every morning um you know to Ashmont station so that he can go to school on time you know 
Um, and because that the headway that the trains are slower and then the headways are, you know, you could wait used to be, you know, every 10 minutes, the train would come during rush hour. Now it's 15, 20 minutes. You you know, it's catch as catch can. I bet you we're going to find out in like a week. Philip Ang wants to spend more time with his family back in New York. I'll tell you, can you imagine a worse job than we're really impressed by him? The the little time we had to spend with him, but oh my God. You know what though? The one good thing for Philip Ang is the only way to go is up. It can't really get much worse. What are you talking about? The green line got worse last week. Well, I think he he can do something. I hope he can do something. Based on what? I mean, by the way, I'm not questioning his competence. What is the objective evidence that suggests to you that something's going to get better? There's a horrible story every single week. There may be an impetus for the legislature to spend more money than they than they will i don't know what do you think Shirley? well perhaps and 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 it seems like maura healy is making this a priority that she's willing to to really finally fix the t um but you know i I think for philip ang the good news for him is that he didn't create these problems he's inheriting them Right. And so he's he's going to have to play the Mr. Fix it role. And in, and you're right, Marjorie, it is going to take time. I mean, I, I think it's e- even though this, uh, you know, the 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 shutdown will will help with the slow zones. Um, you know, I still I don't think we're going to be completely back to normal, um, but it's going to take some time. And um, and and hopefully, you know, maybe we'll see some real gains in a year or so. You know, what's incredible, though, that speaks to the political skills of the following person. Then we can move on is, as you say, this preceded Ang. Ninety nine percent of it preceded Healy. Well, who came before Healy? And do we hear one word about, well, wait a second. Maybe Charlie Baker really didn't do what needed to be done on the tee. I mean, he was pretty, when he's on our studio and we're talking about the tee, he was really tough talking about how he invested more in the capital program, what, $8 billion than anybody before. He basically left a disaster in the hands of Healy, Ang, and whoever the Secretary of Transportation ends up being. Well, it also seems like he did. I think it is true. He put in a lot of money, but I don't know if all that money got spent. Because well, the issue of, is not how much money. The issue is the, right. the bottom line. The is results. It running? The results. Right. right. Is it running? And I and I think that's the problem. I think he. I think it. I think it's true. I think he wrote some really giant checks and set aside a lot of money, but not all that money got deployed because of labor shortage or other capital investment issues, or, or maybe it was hard to get equipment. I don't know. Or maybe well, how about the, the trains out of Springfield right. that uh, we're not getting? Those not are getting that. Are faulty, not the new that. cars. I mean, it seems clear to me that there's an unbelievable incompetence problem all the way down from the top of the T because how could you have just built this new extension with train tracks that They're were too narrow. too narrow and no one seemed to know it? And how could it be that people are so ill-trained that some workman or woman is out there fixing the tracks and almost gets run over because yeah. they don't have – you hear this over and over, yep. not not enough training, not enough training, not enough training. So – and then, of course, they've been so secretive all these years. We couldn't get information about them. God, you know, when I was at the Herald a million years ago, and, and it's hard for the globe too, right? Yeah, it is. It is. It's it's hard. But anyways, I, I it's a – Anyways, Phil, I hope I hope Phil Philip Ng does not go back to New York. I was uh, kidding. I <laughs> we hope need he someone. We need someone to fix also. the tea. <laughs> well, I mean, he did. I mean, by the way, he was Mister Fixer on the LIRR. So the hope is that. 
he can do here what he did there. We're talking to Shirley Leung. So, Shirley, um, really good piece also in The Globe. This is from the editorial board. Uh, talking about the suburbs of Boston, how they plot to keep out poor families by allowing uh, housing uh, targeted at seniors and almost no families, or they put the families, whatever ones are going to have, right next to the senior housing. I would say, I don't think they do that in Brookline from what I've seen, but apparently in your town, they do it in Milton, Milton, apparently. Milton. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's so interesting because I've lived in Milton for a decade and there is a lot of senior housing here. And now I know why. <laughs> and, uh, and basically the editorial was about how, um, you know, the state has passed all these affordable housing requirements. Um, and one way uh, the suburban communities have kind of done an end run on meeting the, or, or one way they've been able to fulfill the affordable housing requirements is to prioritize senior housing and not families, uh, low income working families um, who, uh, you know, research has shown. Uh, if you have these families, they're able to move into, um, you know, a neighborhood, a better neighborhood. Their kids can go to a better school system. I mean, there that is a fast track to be, for upward mobility. And so there are all these low-income families that have been boxed out, not just in Milton, but in other towns as well. And it, and I think what was um, really uh, kind of shocking about the editorials that towns were not, they don't hide this fact. Exactly. <laughs> they say it. It's in, they say it They in, in plain view. And so, um, and, and I think that, and, and it, and it, and the editorial make it, made it seem like we've known this has been an issue for years. You um, know, by the way, you mentioned a lot of affordable housing uh, laws and, this happens nevertheless. But the point that was that we don't make clearly enough, we mentioned the Charlie Baker inspired MBTA communities law about requiring greater density around T, what, 170 some T stops around this state. But I think we leave people with the impression that it's an affordable housing law. It is not. It doesn't mention affordable housing. So the good news is there'll be greater density required uh, in terms of zoning. The bad news is it doesn't mean that low and moderate income people are going to be able to find places. It's a fabulous editorial. It goes into this in great depth, and I really urge people to read it. It's called The Boston Suburbs Cynical Ploy to Keep Poor Families Out, Use Seniors as a uh, shield. And you're probably, the other part of it is so great, as you mentioned, it is not like they're trying to hide it. At least no. a couple of communities want, are quoted saying, we don't want uh, low-income people ki- with kids. kids in Poor the kids, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it'll be a drag on our, you know, more pressure, more, uh, more pressure on our schools. So it's better that we just focus on seniors. So, uh, Shirley Young, um, more women in, in positions of power, Planned Parenthood is not that much of a surprise. Uh, women have always run Planned Parenthood. But uh, Christy Lynch at the a- AFL-CIO. So tell us about these two uh, new women taking over big jobs. Right. So Christy Lynch uh, is set to be the first woman uh, to run, uh, to oversee the AFL-CIO in Massachusetts. I actually was surprised by that. She was the, the first woman. I thought they would have other women, but she's, uh, breaking a barrier. And, um, and also, also, I think in, in my colleague Katie Johnson's story, I was surprised to know that ha- there are a lot of women in labor. I think the unions, half, half women at least. Yeah, and so, so, um, they, they, so they made the point that it's the largest organization of working women in the United States of America. The AFL-CIO is, yeah. 
Yeah. So I was, I was like, well, then, then it's high, t- it's about time, you know, right? There's a woman running, uh, the AFL CIO in, um, in Massachusetts. And I, th- and, and it's a real opportunity for, um, issues that women really, really care about become a priority, uh, like, you know, childcare, I think, for, or, and comprehensive healthcare. So I, I think it's, um, I think it's really great to see her rise. Yeah. And, and, she got two young kids too. I know. Did you, yeah, uh, Marjorie? You, Marjorie, did you read that little that that detail in the story about how she planned her pregnancy? Yes, yeah. for non-election election years. years. I didn't know because what, she was I, a political director, but she I didn't know what that work. meant. Yeah. Did that mean election, political elections, or AFL CIO elections? What political elections because she was doing political okay. work right. for the AFL yeah. CIO, and yeah. so yeah, she didn't want to have and, a, be pregnant right. during an election cycle. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Yeah, I was like, wow. That's impressive. Right. Well, also, women need to talk about that. Men don't need to think about that. Men never have to really plan their careers around their pregnancy. No, they you don't. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why I had my kids so late, I was 39 and 40, 30, uh, you know, because I wanted to kind of establish, I wanted my career, I wanted to wait for my career yeah. to be a little more Absolutely. established before I took a step back, took time off, took a uh, maternity leave. Um, and so I think that's why you see a lot of women who have uh, kids later in life. You know? Oh, absolutely. I spoke to your two kids. They said, since you got the podcast, they haven't seen you once. But that's all. You know, can I say one thing? You know what a standard joke is in t- towns like, like Brookline or Newton or Needham? You go to the playground and the mothers all look like the grandmothers because they've waited it's so true. long. To have it's kid. true. You know, it's true. Uh, hey, uh, by I have way, a lot of gray hair. My mom yeah. didn't have gray hair when I had, ten, I just I, when I say, had a 10-year-old kid. I'm not sure I know Chrissy Lynch. I hear fabulous things about her. But let me just say Steve Tolman, who's the outgoing oh, guy. Yeah is really fabulous. He is really a caring, he was a really caring, yes. decent soul as a state senator. And he's, I think he's been a great president of the state uh, fed, the AFL-CIO. Before you go though, new head of Planned Parenthood, you write yeah. about too. Uh, yes. Tell us about her. So Dominic Lee, uh, she is returning to uh, Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts. She is the first um, person of color uh, to lead uh, Planned Parenthood in Massachusetts. She's half indigenous and half Chinese. Um, incredible story. Uh, she left home. She grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. She left home when she was 16 to escape what she described as a, you know, traumatic and tumultuous childhood. Um, took her nine years to get her bachelor's degree. Um, she just stuck with it. And she started out in, um, in, uh, Somerville and Boston, uh, for Planned Parenthood. She came here. She moved, followed a boy, uh, to San Francisco when she was very young, fell, you know, fall, came here for love. But it turns out she found, as she said, a love of her career, you know, and she's been in the Planned Parenthood system. For about you know fifteen or so years, um, what was so incredible about her was that she came to uh, Massachusetts. She went to L.A., opened a center in L.A., and after a few years, she said, "You know what? I want to challenge. Um, I want to know what it's like uh, to be at a Planned Parenthood center and be in Planned Parenthood in a state that does not uh, that that is hostile to abortion rights That's and reproductive impressive. rights." So she raised her hand to go to Arizona um, in, you know, about, I don't know, I think it was like a decade ago or so. And and she, you know, recounted like working under conditions where uh, there were laws passed to uh, really restrict abortion. Um, Even you know, pro the repeal of Roe. 
Right. This was before yeah. Yeah. Roe v. Wade was was overturned. And so she she wanted that experience. What is it like? What is it like for the patients? What is it like for the it's workers? Really uh, and so and, you know, and uh, that experience really prepares her for this moment in Planned Parenthood. Right. They are facing incredible challenge fallout from the reversal of Roe v. Wade and Massachusetts, you know, while our abortion rights right now are protected under state law. Um, you know, there's talk of a national ban. Well, know, also a lot of women want to come ban. here because you can get right. an illegal abortion. Right. Surely, so it, a real, a real big, a real big, a great hire for for the league, and um, so. and I think she'll she'll you'll see you I think you'll hear a lot from her. Uh, Shirley, it's great to see you. Who's next on the podcast? We have 15 seconds. Quickly. Marty Barron, former, oh, my former boss. Great. His uh, book sounds great. I can't wait. His book is out tomorrow. Yeah, former to editor of the Globe, it. former editor of the Washington Post. Um, and you guys are having him on too, right? We hope. We don't I know. Hope so. we, we had, had him a couple on of months ago. Before, but we hope oh, I thought again. that's well, what he told me. I, oh, great. He told me he's coming on Jim and Marjorie. Okay. Well, we're ready. We're ready. Hey, Shirley, it's wonderful to see you as always. Oh, he's coming on November. He's going to, in November, he's going to be here. That's great. great. Okay, Shirley, thank you very Bye, much. Bye, Shirley. See you soon. We've been speaking with Shirley Young, business columnist for the Boston Globe, host of the Same War podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. Next one, as she said, Marty Barron, former editor of the Boston Globe, Washington Post. And uh, Shirley, of course, is a GBH contributor. Up next, the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emma G. Price III for another edition of All Revved Up. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. We're joined now by Reverend Zyrian Monroe and Emma G. Price III. They obviously all together host the All Revved Up <laughs> podcast here at GBH. Welcome to you both. Happy hey, Monday. Yeah. Happy Monday great, to you. Great to see you both. So we have some horrible news and then some mm. good news. At least I didn't know this, street cred-wise, for the Catholics here today. Let's start with the horrible news uh, down in, in Baltimore where the archdiocese is filed for bankruptcy, uh, meaning a lot of the people that are survivors of abuse will never get their their day That's in court. Right. What do you think, Emmett? Right. Well, you know, this is absolutely sad that a church <laughs> would use <laughs> the protections of uh, corporate America to to protect itself from those that the church at writ large has traumatized. Mm-hmm. Um, by complicity and silency. So the, 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 the realization here is that folks who um, are looking for justice, who are looking for acknowledgement, will now have to go through an extra layer or extra layers of legal uh, proceedings in order to just even get to the church to be That's recognized right. for the traumas yeah. that they've experienced. You know, this is this is a pox on the church that refuses to, to heal. I think filing under Chapter 11 a bankruptcy code. I mean, it's a legal loophole that just allows the church to look away. Now, the interesting thing is some data has come up that says that it usually the average age for a person to report about sex abuse is 52, yeah. age 52. And that out of that demographic group, 86% never really come forth. So what the, actually what we're doing using this bankruptcy, you know, law here is blocking trans- transparency, which the church said it would. It's reinscribing the harm. It, it's, it covers up 
the injury, not only to the entire institution, but to the very people. These were innocent children who were harmed, and many of them, their lives were ruined to the point of suicide. I think that's what they don't understand. The other thing that bothers me about this, not all bankruptcies are created equal. And the problem with that is that it depends on whether the sexual abuse was at a parish school or Catholic charity. They each have different different laws. So I just think that what we need to really understand about the church that when it said it wanted to heal, it really doesn't. What it really wants to do is just really save its behind. Well, can I tell you something? You're both being too nice. Uh, even though you're trash, <laughs> this is so unimaginably yeah. <laughs> despicable. Let me just add a couple of facts to this thing. The state legislature in Maryland decided to get rid of the statute of limitations in civil proceedings, not criminal, but civil proceedings, because, as you said, I mean, a minute ago, when are people ready after having lived through this? When do they remember it? You know, that sort of thing. We learned this in Massachusetts. And what's appalling, the legislature finally does we didn't go quite that far under remember carmen durso who's done a lot of the cases yep, yep, yep. he helped to work to change the statute of limitations here it extended it it didn't totally eliminate it but it was a good step in the right direction they filed for bankruptcy two days before the state that's law right. would go right. into effect giving right. great new rights to survivors that's number one number two uh, because the statute of limitations was removed, that meant you could file whenever you want under a bankruptcy proceeding. There'll be an end date, which will be much shorter. That's right. And three, and you guys did touch on this, but I want to reemphasize this. What we've learned, Marjorie and I have had the honor to spend a lot of time either interviewing or just being with survivors. Almost all of them talk about when they finally decided they were ready, being able to speak about it, both publicly, a courtroom, whatever, That's meant right. everything. They won't be able to speak about it That's in a right. courtroom. It's a to- it is so grotesque and, yeah. and savage. It is just it's unbelievable. And, and they want to confront their they want to confront their exactly abusers. exactly. And the right. problem with that is that part of healing, really, in terms of not only the just, justice system but the court as well, is to face your abuser, force them to hear what they have done, and then make them accountable. And, you know, we've had one survivor call the show, which is which which is a friend of mine, if, and to talk about it. And she didn't come out really until mm-hmm. way in way in her 50s. You know, one I want to truly <clears throat> great. We're all we all know this person, one of the true greats uh, ever, right. just an incredible, courageous soul. She is. Uh, Christine is her first. Yeah, name that's right. Christine, right. Yeah, she's right. she's she's terrific. I want to mention this story quotes uh, Terry McKernan from Bishop Accountability. Yeah. And it's a great website, bishopaccountability.org. They list all the uh, credibly accused priests, all the credibly uh, accused bishops, the lack of action on the part of the bishops. With all the details, every detail. It's just just great. They do a wonderful job. And he was very upset about this, upset about this, too. But the church can go dark. See, that's the whole thing. And it's, yeah. and, and it's been wanting and it has been dark. The whole idea of us setting up this kind of system was about accountability that it never happens again. We cannot be assured that it won't. Yeah. So 
I was very surprised by this next story about black Catholics in American music. You know, how many times do you talk, you interview, or there's some great uh, black artist who says, where did they start? They started singing in the church. And needless to say, as someone who's been a Catholic all my life, there is really no comparison between the music in the black church and the music in the Catholic church. We have a music man right here, yeah, by the way. I mean, That's right. That's you know right. what I'm talking about, Eileen? I- Irene. Eileen, yeah. not Irene. Whoever Eileen. Eileen is. I mean, you, right. you were raised in a Catholic orphanage, as was Billie Holiday. That's right. And I then they that. always talk about other singers that were Catholics. Louis Armstrong, I didn't know any of this. Louis Armstrong, Lena Horne, Barry Valafonte, Nina Simone, and well, Jelly yeah, Roll Morton. Yeah. So yeah. I, I guess the thing is, um, yeah. uh, I'm stunned because, um, <laughs> you know, the singing in the Catholic Church leaves a lot to be desired. So, And all the people still got soul. How about that? All that you, that you named. That's right. That's right. That's right. I, I didn't know Billie Holiday grew up in an orphanage. I didn't know yeah. any of this stuff. And that she actually got last rights from a priest. So I don't know. I mean, after is there a talking, question in the middle of this or yeah, what is it? Well, you guys can react. I guess I'm just thinking, you know. The, Where it after, come from? Uh, the story about Baltimore is so horrible. And then this story is, I don't know, it's something. You know anyway. what I would do if I were you? I'd say, Emmett, you know a lot about music. Emmett, What's your yeah, reflection you know on this? You know a lot about music. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about this, and particularly because we're in Boston, um, we don't experience this this way. But in many major cities, um, there are major black Catholic parishes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and of course, we do have a couple in, 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 in Boston. Um, but in Los Angeles at St. Bridget's, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Catholic Church, a lot of musicians. I mean, Amanda Gorman. That's um, right. You know, is affiliated with that with that Paris as well. I didn't know that. Right. So, yeah. and then and then in Louisiana, particularly in New Orleans, Ooh, a huge population yeah. of Black folks um, right. are are Catholic. Um, right. And so that's why you know your your Louis Armstrong and some of your other folks uh, would be affiliated with that. But all all Black people have some way of processing um, our experiences in the world. Uh, we often talk about faith, sometimes it's spirituality. And so all of those things make sense that we we have some kind yeah. of grounding and some kind of a particular nuance that helps us. And so yeah. it's no mistake that the Catholic uh, tradition has permeated through American music, through uh, black creative expression, yeah, but whether jazz, it's expressed R&B, differently. Yeah. 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 You know, et cetera. It, you know, one of the things you got to understand is something called the black religious cosmos. And that and Father Stalins, who was a priest in Washington, D.C., was a charismatic uh, Catholic preacher, the, and the congregation comprised of black parishioners. You would not going, going into Father Stalin's church. See, this is where you understand so much that denomination has less to do with it than it has to do with how the retentions of African music is played in all of those black Catholic or black Protestant churches. If you're going to white Catholic churches, that's a very different story because then you got to out, then there's a different theology, liturgy, you know, as, as well as music. So like one of my favorite singers, Shaka Khan, I mean, and Roberta Flack, a, a black Catholics. When you look at Louisiana, particularly New Orleans, you have the sisters of the blessed sacred for mm-hmm. Indians and people and of people color, color and mm-hmm. people of color here. And um, that order uh, really helped um, develop uh, uh, Xavier University that was founded in 1925. I think this is what I need to say, though. 
that we have to really parse out that when we're talking about black Catholics, we're now talking about folks of African-American descent. We're not talking about the global South or the or so much the Caribbean, although Harry Belafonte and Bob Marley are. Yeah, are, Bob Marley. Are. I Marley's forgot a him. Catholic too. Yeah. That's right. But but I need Yikes. to make what this is what I want to make clear here. I mean, because you can say I'm a black Catholic. OK, there is a difference between those of us who go to Catholic church because we're in an orphanage like me. Or we go there because the schools are better than our parochial school, than those of us who actually go through communion. I saw Beyonce on that list, now, and I saw Nina Simone, and I said, now, wait a minute. Yes, the, her mom comes from that Creole tradition, but what we got to understand with Nina Simone, her mother was a Methodist uh, minister. Uh, Beyonce grew up as a Methodist. I grew up as a Baptist, but I will never forget my Catholic roots. But again, Marjorie, to resonate what you say, I, I couldn't find the soul. I couldn't find the beat. I love those sisters. I mean, because I'm named after one of them. But God help them when it came to the music. It, they were, the church was in need of prayer. And I prayed yeah. for them, too. Yeah, I haven't found the beat myself. Yeah. I've been there for a long yeah. time. I've been looking for it. I'm telling you. Although you know, you do you do always say that that that, that they used to have better music in the church when they went back to ancient times with the Gregorian chants. If you're into that oh, kind yeah. of thing, I mean, those are pretty good. But I don't know the the folkiness of it. Really, is not. It hasn't. What do you mean the folkiness? What does well, that they mean? try post Vatican II to bring in the guitars and you know all in that Catholic churches. Yeah, or they have yeah. some elderly woman standing up there going whoo. The Catholic Church post-Vatican II had too many restrictions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you got to let people yeah. be free to express themselves. And, let and the Holy Ghost come in. That's right. And, and you know what else? There's a, there's a, um, a, a Hispanic Mass that, that I have gone to and I've heard a lot. You know, it's in, it's mm-hmm. in my church, too. They're having much more fun down there at the in the Hispanic the, the Hispanic Mass too. Oh, yeah. Love, yeah, than they do with the, it's charismatic. Yeah, yeah so maybe it's, it's and Haitian the Haitian Church because Haitian what church. you got is the mixture of voodoo uh, blending in with Catholicism. I think what we understand the Catholic Church to be because you really do need to visit some of them by what we call now people of color because if you're going to a Dominican Republic you know, congregation, you're going to a Haitian congregation, you would just say, well, okay, this, this is, this is definitely, yeah. you know, isn't uh, Catherine, but I, I think, Catherine, we ha- oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that what has happened here is that again, the, 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 the dominance of white Catholicism versus the very, um, complexions of Catholicism gives us this notion that when you go to a Catholic church, which is true if it's mostly white, it's true. You, you're not going to get the kind of drumming and the guitars that you definitely get in a Haitian church. Yeah. Catherine Drexel, isn't, isn't that a largely black parish in Boston? Mm-hmm. I think it, so. Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I think very so. significant right. one. Yeah, right. very, very significant. Right. And now you got the African, you got the African diaspora, folks coming from all over the continent. And that has a different kind of flair, too, and which is just absolutely beautiful. The colors, the robes. I mean, it, 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 it reminds you again that connection of what we call that black religious cosmos, that no matter where we are, those roots and those traditions have ways of coming forth. You know, while you three are were enjoying this conversation, I'm steaming <laughs> about the Baltimore situation. So, oh, yeah. can I, I? I hate to end on a down note. We're a little tight on time today, but let me let me ask. Starting with you, Emmett, I, 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 
we are, I was just reading some stuff about the synods that are happening in October and the yeah. lead up to that. I don't want to talk about that because I think it's too inside baseball for most people. But what I was reading when I did that is based upon the most recent, I don't know if appointment is the right noun, but whatever the Pope does, the pick cardinals, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100, roughly out of 137 cardinals under 80, if he were to die in a finite, you know, a reasonable period of time, he's 80, I think, or something himself, would uh, vote, meaning liberal-leaning uh, cardinals who've been picked by him. Uh, I'm asking Emmett first because I know what Irene's answer is going to be. <laughs> so I'm hopeful here. Is there some hope that that with those kinds of numbers that <laughs> the next pope could go even farther than uh, Francis has been willing to go in a lot of things, including clearly the sexual abuse crisis, and maybe... We don't see Baltimore's anymore in the future, or is that totally naive? It's naive. It's naive. Yes. And, and I'm a divine optimist. But I know you are. Because yeah. the politics of the church have permeated so deeply that um, we've lost the essence of the divine, and we've lost the mystery of, of you know, the creator that is much larger than us. And Irene well, well I don't know how much so we in, lost. In that, in that, in that sense, in that sense, um, the, the 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 Catholic Church, through its various manifestations of, ref- of reformations, has moved away from what it was back in the <laughs> early times. Well, listen, I disagree with him on that. I don't I don't think that they lost the essence of the divine because that's very subjective. I think what they have lost is democracy here. I think that as long as the church continues to isolate ordain don't do not ordain women do not make women deacons and priests do not include lgbtq inclusion ordain married men we will continue to reinscribe a hierarchy that doesn't serve a church today because one of the things about church is that it's not a static institution Uh, it's fluid and if a church does not face the world then it's just facing, it's just navel-gazing. So let me just add to your list of and re-abusing abuse victims, survivors is on that list as well. I actually am more uh, uh, optimistic about the American Catholic Church because they're losing numbers in droves. There's a lot of money from the United States. You know, it's harder because the African Catholic Church is very conservative and a lot of the South American Catholic Church, that's where they're growing. So I think the, I have uh, more hope for the American Catholic Church because it's all about the bucks and the people aren't there. Well, I'm going to ride on your hope, Marjorie. Okay. We're out of time, but Emmett, you told us last week, and of course, I probably forgot, there's a special edition of the podcast coming up. When is that again? And what's the topic? October 18th. And what is And the topic is busing. Boston bus. Oh, on the film and busing. Great. October 18th. And we've been bust. And we've been bust. It's a pleasure to see you both, as it always is. Back at you, darling. Emmett and Irene, be well. I love your hat, by the way. I meant to say it earlier, but I'm saying it now. It's great. Thank you so much. It's a way of not combing my hair today. It worked beautifully. See you. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett G. Price III. Irene is a syndicated religion columnist in the Boston Voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail. Emmett is founding pastor of Community of Love Christian Fellowship in Austin, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berklee College of Music, and together they host the All Rev. Podcast here at GBH. Special edition later this month on the busing crisis. Up next... Nova's new series, Ancient Earth, premieres this week. We'll talk with senior producer Caitlin Sachs and geoscientist Phoebe Cohen. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Marjorie. And we're live at the library tomorrow. We told you we'd be joined by Police Commissioner Cox. He canceled on us this morning. Allegedly is going to reschedule. We shall see. On Friday at the library, the Attorney General will spend an hour with us, Andrea Campbell. And next Tuesday, Mayor Wu will be with us for an hour of Ask the Mayor, also at the library. So in the last four and a half billion years, Earth's surface has changed from molten lava to a green water-filled planet. I don't know how long that's going to last. We shall see. But now, Nova Ancient Earth, this new fabulous five-part series, shows the slow-moving, powerful processes that change Earth from frozen and molten landscapes to what we call home today. The series captures the formation of the atmosphere, I watched that one, to various ice ages and extinction events, to the rise of human life. Marjorie watched that one. It premieres this Wednesday, October 4th, through November 1st at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. On PBS, this channel two here, obviously, will be available for streaming at pbs.org slash Nova, Nova on YouTube, and the PBS app. Am I right? App. Am I right about that? Yes, I am. We're joined now by Phoebe Cohen. Phoebe's a chair and associate professor of geosciences at Williams College. Phoebe, it's great to meet you. Thank you so much for being here. And You're very welcome. One of the scientists featured, uh, she's one of the scientists featured in Ancient Earth, and Nova senior producer, Caitlin Sachs. Welcome back to you, Caitlin. Congratulations to you both. It was really great. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun to make. Yeah, yeah I bet it was. Well, let's start with you, Caitlin, because I can see you got your Nova shirt on there. Uh, what was uh, team what uniform? <laughs> what was the um, big picture? What were you, what were you trying to do here? Well. Earth's history has just been filled with so many surprising, dramatic twists and turns. Most people don't even think about it or don't even realize that our our planet has gone through so many different versions. There's been times when it was completely frozen over, like um, like Hoth in Star Wars, a complete snowball planet. Um, there's been times when volcanism has been so effusive that it nearly killed off everything i think it's the, the statistics 90 percent of all species on earth that's that's more than the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs so there's been all sorts of twists and turns that um that are really fascinating that really give context to um the moment that we are in right now uh and so the goal of this series is to really just tell those stories and to um help the public engage and learn about this 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 fantastic story that is our planet phoebe how does it inform where we are right now we talk about where we are right now with great Mm -hmm. trepidation at least a couple of times a week (laughs) yeah that's a great question i mean the things that uh you know that we're talking about in these episodes and that caitlin's referring to happened hundreds of millions or even billions of years ago and so the question is how is that relevant to where we are today and i think um, those events gave us the planet that we have right now, right? Everything that we have on our planet today, from the mountains to you and I, to the life, to the trees, is a product of billions of years of the evolution of Earth and life together. And well, understanding how the Earth has changed during periods of dramatic, um, you know, climactic transitions and how that has impacted life, I think gives us a much better perspective on the relationship between life and our planet that will continue to inform our understanding of future changes as well. You know, in episode one, which I watched, Caitlin, I have to say, when that woman, whose name I, of course, forget, from Iceland, right, is in the caves and describing the relationship between those caves as they are today to what Earth was like billions of years, it gives me chills. Are you beyond that kind of feeling or do you still have that level of excitement? Well, I mean, 
these films are really beautiful films They're and beautiful. the production team, the BBC production team, you kind of went to the, the ends of the earth to try to find landscapes we have today that kind of hint at and evoke what the ancient earth landscape was like. And so in that way, it's still very exciting and, and gives me chills. The graphics are also really amazing. amazing. I, I mean, I feel like we've finally gotten to an, uh, a, a point where um, public television documentaries can still make <laughs> graphics that are very, very highly um, realistic looking. Uh, but we also applied Nova's layer of scientific rigor to make them as accurate as is possible. Um, and so that's really exciting to me. I went... Um, I mean, I studied geology in, in uh, college. Fun fact, Phoebe was my uh, teaching assistant no. in my oh very my first geology class. Oh, my class. God, that is great. <laughs> Small uh, world. <laughs> uh, and I don't remember any films that could really bring to life the, the stories we were learning about then. Um, but now we've kind of, like, gotten to that point, and that's really exciting to see. Well, Phoebe, tell us about, I think it was in episode one, where you answered a question about how the sky, oh, yes. be, it became blue out of this mess of an original planet that we were. How did that happen? Ah, um, so that discussion of how, how we've gotten our sky the way it is has to do with how the chemistry of the atmosphere has changed over time. And what's so cool about that is that it's because of life. And so the evolution of photosynthesis of little tiny bacteria figuring out how to make energy out of sunlight and producing oxygen as a byproduct fundamentally changed the whole planet, the chemistry of the whole planet, and even changed how the atmosphere appears to us because of a change in the gases that make up the atmosphere, which are responsible for its color. You know, speaking yeah. of the gases, I, I, I hope I don't sound like I'm 11 years old here, but there's certain things that were so incredibly thrilling to me. Here's a little clip from the first episode, Birth of the Sky, explaining in part how scientists know what the atmosphere was like billions and billions of years ago. Here's the scientist. The rock I'm holding in my hand is 3.4 billion years old. And there are tiny bubbles trapped in this rock that are samples of Earth's ancient atmosphere. So we can measure the gases and piece together evidence of what the atmosphere was like in the past. Kayla, did you learn stuff you didn't know before you put this thing together? Oh, yeah. Like what? Absolutely. Give us some of the things that excited you. Mm. Oh, man. You're putting me on the spot with that one. I am, I believe, yes. Um, you know, actually, some of the most interesting stuff is actually some of Phoebe's work with... Um, the ways that we started to see uh, the earliest life um, become um, the, the earliest evidence of predation of, of, of some of life attacking other life and, and becoming more complex um, is really fascinating. It's, it's what is that like 800? You know, the number 800 million years old. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish. And you can actually see that in the fossil record. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you, about, Phoebe, yeah, about yeah. those earliest instances of predation. Yeah, so this was a really amazing experience to get to share this research um, uh, on the episode. So, yeah, I and my colleagues have been working on these fossils that are 800 million years old from the Northwest Territories, Yukon region of Canada. And they, they look like tiny pieces of honeycomb cereal, um, but they're microscopic. And they're very intricate 
Um, some of them have spines, some of them have spikes, and many of them have that sort of honeycomb lattice-like structure. And we think that they were tiny microscopic plates of armor that surrounded a single cell that lived in the oceans 800 million years ago. And the soft parts of the cell are long gone, but those tiny pieces of armor have been preserved in rocks for hundreds of millions of years. And it's a lot takes a lot of like energy and material to make those structures like bones and shell. And so their organisms had to have a good reason to do it. And today we know that, you know, you try to shuck an oyster, it really doesn't want you to get in there, right? <laughs> Shells are very protective, defensive structures. And so we hypothesize that these microscopic and very early life forms were doing the same thing. They were building shells um, to protect themselves from being attacked and eaten. We're talking with uh, NOVA senior producer Caitlin Sachs and Phoebe Cohen, no, uh, a geoscientist, about NOVA's new five-part series debuts Wednesday, uh, October 4th. It runs through November 1st. So, you know, I, what I learned is that is that there were all these catastrophes that happened long before you could blame them all on us. We're, we're, we're ruining everything. <laughs> Human beings are right now. And I probably should have known this, but um, I did not know about this I knew about the asteroid, but I didn't know it was the size of Mount Everest equal to 10 billion, I think, nuclear bombs that just wiped everything out with this – where did it land, the asteroid? Did it land in the Yucatan? I wasn't clear. Yucatan Peninsula. Yucatan, okay. Mm-hmm. But yep. then what happened after it landed that was so – it was just in the Yucatan Peninsula and suddenly the whole Earth is in trouble. Did um, you want to tell us about that, Caitlin? She froze. Oh, my goodness. I know. Well, how about you, okay, Phoebe? Okay, well, people have to tell. <laughs> oh, Caitlin's <laughs> back. Go ahead. Caitlin, are you back? She is. Oh, oh. no, she's... Okay. I was asking... Sorry, but- Okay, I was asking about um, the uh, how the, the asteroid, Asteroids. huge as it was, impacted the entire Earth. Yeah, so um, the asteroid uh, landed in a particular part of the world uh, where the rocks that made it up... Uh, were were had a lot of um, um, sulfur in them. If it had landed, if it had landed an hour later or an hour earlier, the Earth would have turned enough that it would have landed in a different spot. But where it landed, it put all of this sulfur up into the atmosphere, which um, reflected sunlight and created um, what we call like a, um, a, 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 a like an impact winter. It made it, 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 it so initially the asteroid hit probably caused wildfires, massive devastation um, in that region. But then it actually uh, impacted the global climate for years and years and years. And that's what killed um, a lot of the big stuff, the dinosaurs, um, a a lot of other animals. Um, But smaller things, including uh, mammals, uh, uh, survived. And they were able to sort of grow into, um, into the niches that were vacated by these larger predators and so if it weren't for that impact we wouldn't be here there's kind of a whole bunch of extraordinary events that if they hadn't happened we would never be here yeah well it's it, it talk about that too how um what was it the purgatoris or something like that some little cute little thing with big eyes that was <laughs> that was one of the little tiny mammals that survived but but how we got from there to us because you know i am I, I suppose interested in us mostly, Phoebe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that I work really hard at um, getting my students to wrap their heads around is the power of time. Yeah, right. That Earth and life are really old, and so it seems 
incredible that we evolved from that tiny little wide-eyed creature that survived, you know, the impact. Um, but, but we did. And the power of evolution and natural selection plus, you know, tens of millions of years uh, is really incredible. I mean, you look around at the diversity of life that we have here on Earth today. It's just remarkable. And, and all of that diversity is the product of, you know, changing environments and just lots and lots of time for natural selection and evolution to work. So Phoebe's thing with you, I, I only watched uh, an hour and a half of the five hours and I'm going to watch the rest, but only had so much. There was not a minute where I wasn't saying to myself using your words, uh, there's evolution and natural selection and there's unnatural evolution and unnatural selection. And I, I couldn't stop thinking about where we are as I saw every piece of that in your work is that, and in working on this film, was that not the experience for you? We sort of started there that obviously what does it impact or what does it tell us about today? Yeah. But it, that, yeah. that was my takeaway every minute from the film. I mean, I think one of the things that's so important about pieces like this, the, the series, is that they share the awe and beauty and wonder and resilience of our planet with a broader audience. Mm -hmm. And we are in a climate crisis, but, um, you know, pessimism doesn't really solve problems. And so I think having a sort of more pragmatic perspective on where we are um is 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 gonna be more successful for us moving forward you subscribed you there caitlin same place i so, sorry you are you in the same place phoebeus yeah i think so i mean what what this series does is you know um our climate crisis has been the past couple hundred years that goes by in about a second yeah. in one of these films. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what we're doing now is we're creating change on a geological scale in not geological time. We're doing it very, very fast. Um, and what I think the perspective that this, these films give me is that the planet has always been changing. It has, it is, it has taken a lot. You know, it's frozen over. It's been mass extinctions and the planet will keep spinning around the sun. Um, will keep spinning and moving around the sun. The question is, um, what will happen to humanity um, and and more on closer time scales, what, what is going to happen to our societies and civilizations that we have built um, on a planet that is changing very quickly now. Yeah. Before you go, how is she as a teaching assistant? <laughs> She's pretty great. I mean, look, here, here I am now making a five-part series. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at her. I'm so proud. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it's a it's a great series. I learned so much, Me and too. and the, the 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 filming is is the animation and all that stuff it's is great. just is is beautiful. You guys did a did a great job. So congratulations Thank to you, you and all of your colleagues. Thank you. It's great to see you both. Yeah, okay. I, I want to point out that this Ancient Earth premieres a five part series premieres this week Wednesday night nine o'clock here on GBH two. It streams at pbs.org slash nova and nova on YouTube and the PBS app as well. Five-part series runs from this Wednesday through November 1st. We've been speaking with NOVA senior producer Caitlin Sachs and geoscientist Phoebe Cohen. Thank you very much, both of you, for Thank being you here. Both. Congratulations on a great piece of work. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, coming up, we're going to talk about walking, uh, but the benefits of walking without your, your uh, air 
earbuds, what do you call them, the earbuds, earbuds, whatever they are, that I put in my ears every morning, or any kind of music that you get into your head any other way, or the podcast, Silently Walking. Apparently, people are pretty excited about walking in silence. We're going to talk about that with you up next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. Tomorrow, we're supposed to have the police commissioner. He canceled. He's allegedly going to reschedule in November. Friday, the attorney general for an hour. Next Tuesday, the mayor for an hour. I just want to say very quickly, it was just a promo for Fat Ham. I saw it yesterday. It oh, is It was great. At the Calderwood. Brilliant. The lead person who plays Juicy, who is essentially the Hamlet of today, and the assistant director are going to join us in studio on Wednesday. Uh, it is spectacular. Get tickets and... Listening. You know what else is great, too? The theater's small enough that you feel like it's you're right, practically on stage. Every part of it was just incredible. Humans have been walking for at least, I don't know, three million years. The concept isn't anything new, although these days you can, for the first time, outwalk the trains in Boston, which is pretty exciting. So when's the last time you took yourself on a silent walk, uninterrupted by a podcast, an audiobook, or BPR in your headphones or music? It's the latest viral trend, apparently, on TikTok. As one New York Times article frames critics' opinions, Gen Z thinks it just invented walking. But in today's plugged-in world, is it one form of mindfulness we could really use? Or is it, as I believe, far too dangerous to be left alone with your thoughts for any length of time? So give us a call or a text. Are you a fan of silence, not just walking anywhere these days? Are you able to actually process your thoughts and emotions when you let them arise in uninterrupted? Or are you somebody like me who needs sound, either background sound or sound that you're engaging with uh, every single minute of the day? And actually, as I've told Marjorie, I... Used to go to sleep to talk radio. I now go to sleep to music, and uh, I, I need sound all the time. You told me, which I did not know, that starting back when you were a big-time runner, when I was actually running too, centuries ago, used to run like 15 miles with no earbuds. Well, we didn't have earbuds, but no ear, no headphones or anything, well, no sound at all. I think your choice then was to carry a Walkman with yeah, you. Yeah, and a lot of us did carry a yeah, Walkman. Yeah, that was too much for Yeah, that was too much for me. Running shorts yeah. it, So well, do you still take walks with no sound? Well, I, I must admit I mix it up sometimes and listen to podcasts, but I, I get what they're saying. You know, if you, if you do anything in silence, your head has kind of a vacation and ideas and creativity pops yeah. into your mind. When I used to do magazine work, it was very good for writer's block. You know, you could figure out how really? to do the whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're just, and that's what they're talking about. They're talking. We don't do anything now without sound. Everybody's got earbuds exactly. in. You see people running. They've all got earbuds in. And that's the idea that we've lost something. That we've lost that non-distracted time. And it's rooted in the whole mindfulness thing. You know, to really pay attention to what you're doing. So I don't want to pay attention. Okay. Well, doing. you don't want to pay attention, Jim. I, I get it. Because gosh, if you paid attention. <laughs> Wow. Could be really scary. <laughs> Could be a lot of self-revelation going I, I on. I choose and not. Who, who wants that? <laughs> exactly. Well, others may. I do not. So essentially we have, well, not quite two extremes. Marjorie likes silence. I do. And allows her apparently to be creative and all that sort of things. I, I literally, I, whether it's in the, do you hear Zoe, our coworker, drives home? With no sound in her car, she well, doesn't it, turn on the radio. Yeah, I think it reduces stress. It reduces uh, I feel the your blood pressure. I get more stress when I really do when there's silence. Well, if you've never been silent for more than five <laughs> minutes, how do you really know, Jim? 
Okay, that's a good Remember point. Remember when you told me you listened to all night radio? I used to, I thought, when, I used to wow. listen to talk radio. Well, I didn't listen the whole night. I had to play on my ear. Occasionally yeah, I'd wake up. I'd hear right. a couple seconds. Nothing like people go calling back to in sleep. at 3 o'clock in the morning. No, especially, you know what's really nice about it, if you listen hmm. to all night radio, is if you aren't aware of what life is like for 90-year-olds, you actually... Who can't sleep? You learn what it was. This picture it was into really, the future. There in any is. case, I, I need sound all the time. I and I know I'm not alone in this. When I'm sitting around the house doing, even if I'm reading for work, I have either the radio on or the television on in the background. That's the way I live my life. And now, I'm somebody perfectly just, happy with it. Somebody just said there. Oh, uh, Sean and Malden just said he's uh, just headed out for a walk while listening to BPR and his earbuds. You of course do not want to discourage that. We make an exception anytime you can listen to BPR. Then I say that, that fuels your creative juices. Does it not? Well, I, I think I think quiet is is something that's lost. I mean, you know how people. I just got a text from get in from, their house. I just got a text from Shirley. I want to tell you, Shirley oh, yeah? Young, who's oh, yeah? with us a while. She She's driving around in her car because we taped it right before the show, and she's listening to the segment, mm-hmm. and she says, "Oh my God, there's somebody else talking about the tea." And then she realized, <laughs> "No, wait a second, it's me talking about the tea." <laughs> Oh my God! Are you? Into, it's not just silent. Silent walking is what made us think about it. But are you into silent walking? Are you into silent living whenever you can? I am not. Apparently, Marjorie Egan is Brendan in the car. You're first on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Brendan. Hi there. How are you? Excellent. Fine, thanks. Well, I'm a walker. I walk every day. I walk about four miles every day, mm-hmm. and I do it with nothing in my ears because everything is a distraction. I've seen people walking with their iPhones or whatever who have walked into intersections without realizing the white <laughs> No, that is true. That is true. That is I true. Have, and, and people with earphones on don't hear traffic, don't hear horns, etc. I think it can be unsafe. What do you think about what hey, uh, Brendan, Brendan, when you're walking silently, yeah. what do you think about? What kinds of things do you think about? Well, I think about a lot of things that are going on in my life, mm-hmm. uh, and, I, and I think about solutions to problems or oh. things that exactly that, solutions. Brendan, so thank I you. I mean, that, that I guess. Do you think about? Thank you for the call. Do you think about solutions to problems when you're walking? No, I think about my problems and how I can't solve them. <laughs> That's what I think about. You should call Brendan see if I he should. can solve them. So, so um, this uh, piece about this in the uh, where's this from? New York Times says uh, some pe- for some people the idea of a silent walk might seem torturous. One 2014 study found that if left with no other option, people would shock themselves rather than sit along I really, we've with their about thoughts. That. We've talked about that. I forgot about that. We have talked about that <laughs> in the past. Right. They'd administer a shock to themselves. Right? I would do that in a second. Well, think about it. Think about it. How, when you walk into the house at night. Or whenever you walk, I immediately down. turn on the radio. Yeah, immediately exactly. turn, turn on the radio. radio. Turn on the television. And try like for three minutes or no, maybe two minutes. Go walk into the house and don't turn on. It's, it changes. Everything. Can I tell you? It's bad enough going from my car with sound, walking up the stairs to my apartment. <laughs> that takes what like thirty seconds. That's tough enough. So that's plenty of silence for me. Sarah in Jamaica Plain. Thank you for calling. Hello, Sarah. Hey, how y'all doing? Great. Great. Thank you. Good. Good. Um, I'm standing in Franklin Park as we speak. Oh. And um, no one's around, which I'm really glad about. And it is not silent in here. The crickets are going. The birds are going. The wind is in the trees. There are squirrels scampering through the, the, you know, fallen detritus. You know, I'm telling you, it's gorgeous. And it's like heavenly to have the silence. 
Now, wait a minute, Sarah. Hold on, Sarah. You, how can you be talking to us if you're in silence in Franklin Park? Well, she's taking a break. Well, what happened was I was driving over to go for my walk. I was listening to your show. Okay. And, they were talking, and I, so I had my phone in my pocket, you know, for safety reasons. And um, I just, because I don't even own a pair of earbuds. And I just was like, oh, my God. This is the perfect topic because everybody needs to walk quietly. And to say in silence is kind of like a misnomer, I think. Yeah. It's, it's not silent out here. That's not to mention I can hear the traffic going on, you know, on the other. But right now I'm in a very quiet place. I'm on. I came up on uh, Glen Road entrance. So it's very quiet in here Sarah, right now, except for, as I say. You said it beautifully, actually. Sarah, thanks for the call. Paul texted and said, He's like me. I need noise almost all the time. So, so much so that I'll listen to Jim if there's nothing else available. <laughs> well, I'm Ryan, that is beautiful, Paul. Thank Ryan you. from Paxa says, I enjoy silence mostly when Jim starts talking. <laughs> and listen to this, Joe from Derry, New Hampshire. I, I do long distance motorcycle rides with no sound 12 plus wow. hours sometimes. Wow. 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 Well, you know, what Sarah said a minute ago is pretty significant is that there is sound i'm i guess we're talking about artificially infused is that the right word i artificially, guess so. yeah, yeah injected sound and a lot of people i know listen to audiobooks while they're walking too well that's, that's another that's, big thing i would do that i mean too. i've done that for work when i'm trying to listen to a podcast what i need to do for work i'll do it when i'm walking but it is better i think if you can listen to nothing garth in the car thank you for calling hi hi um i was saying my kids can't walk down the street without having their earbuds in their car. Yeah, I can't either. Yeah. But it's tough to be mindful if there's something in your head all the time. And you need to learn to self-soothe. That's right. Well, that's a good long... Yeah, it's a good go, term. If you go hiking in the winter when it's snowing, snowshoeing or cross-country skiing, you won't hear anything. Yeah, you know, um, that's a great point, too. Sometimes being outside in the snow, that's a great point, hearing absolutely nothing. Or going to a place, we've probably all been to places where there's no noise. You can't hear the cars, you can't hear the horns, wow. you can't hear anything. It's just quiet. And it does kind of freak you out because we're so used does to, freak you out. to noise, right? Well, here's a friend of mine who just texted, said Sarah, who was talking about being in Franklin Park, uh-huh. is right. Nature has its own orchestra. It's majestic. Oh, It's pretty beautiful. That. Now, Jamie, on the other hand, uh, our colleague here just posted to us on a flight to Japan a few years ago. The man who sat next to me spent the entire 14 hours sitting in <laughs> silence. No TV, no book, no earbuds. Looking forward and sitting quietly. Meanwhile, I was reading a book, playing a game, watching a show, <laughs> listening to a podcast, and was crawling out of my skin after two hours. That's my kind of guy right there. Al on the road. What do you think, Al? Hello, Al. Hey, guys. How are you? Hey, Al. How are um, you? I'm doing very well. Good. Uh, I love going for walks without any uh, earbuds or anything like that. Um, oddly enough, today is the first day of archery season for deer. It is? And so from, yeah. Uh, from now till the end of January, yeah. I'll be spending Saturdays out sitting in a tree. Oh, my just God. Just listening to the woods from sunrise to sunset. And it is fantastic. So wait a second. While you're sitting there, you're waiting for a deer to come by so you can kill it? Yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed. You know, Jim? Well, so what's you need that to call the like? herd, well, right? And there's, there's a lot of deer. You need to what call do you the know herd. about calling the herd? Because I've read the stories about people going to Blue Hill Avenue. Cause the poor I don't d- think I mean, Al's going Blue out Hill there Avenue, to call Blue the Hill, herd. Because there can be starving if there's too many, right, Al? Yeah, uh, there's too many deer. Uh, the limits are set by mass wildlife. That's right. 
So wait a second. The limits. You're sitting in a damn tree, just waiting for a deer to come by. Yeah. Okay, Al. Thank you. It's, it's, huh? I, the wind, the the wind, the birds, the squirrels, the ducks on the river. Listening to all that is uh, extremely peaceful. It's very oh. meditative, and uh, it's very difficult when I go home and the wife and the kids get me right at the door. I'm like, whoa! I haven't said a word to anybody in like 14 hours. Be quiet. Yeah, sitting in a <laughs> well, tree. That's Al, exa- thank yeah. You. A couple of people that have young kids are saying. Uh, one of them just said, as a mom of young children, I often drive in silence when I can to get a break from the noise. Yeah, I turn the sound on a second. I get there. Hannah apparently lived in New York City. Our colleague, I needed. In quote, ear pods to deal with the overwhelming sound in New York City, like a cocoon from the craziness. That's actually different. Well, that's true. Because that's an unnatural, uh, omnipresent sound that you have to... I agree with that. I, I think that's a legitimate thing. Here's Jerry who says, I get my best creative thoughts while out for runs without earbuds, etc., but I carry a pencil and paper to write down those while ideas. While you're running? Uh, well, he says uh, runs. Yeah, running. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Well... Okay, let's go. Carry a laptop to... with you, and you can just type it up there. J- uh, Jane in uh, Concord, I think. Hi, I think Jane. I didn't carry a laptop. Jim. I was joking. I was wanting to okay, see if you were paying wondering. attention. I'm you trying are. to pay attention. You are. Yes. Not the only part of it. Go ahead, Jane. <laughs> what what what's your deal there exactly? Hi, I do walk, but usually with a partner, so I don't have headphones then. But if I'm by myself, I do tend to listen to an audiobook. And I told your screener, I think I've lost my ability to fall asleep easily by listening to audiobooks every night. Um, but I also am an advocate for the silence because it is very meditative. And I have a friend who was hit by a car jogging wearing the old Walkman oh, years ago. Yeah, and now we have those electric cars like Jim's and, and the hybrids. And so the car traffic can be even quieter. So we really shouldn't be wearing headphones. Yeah, but can I tell you, Jane, I want to correct you. That it's not a problem with me because my car has been in the shop for three weeks. So I don't have to worry about hitting anybody. It's a beautiful thing. Jane, thank you very much for the call. Anyway, I can work that into a conversation. I will. Two and a half weeks, my Tesla has been in a... Uh, it's outrageous, Jim. Yeah. It's outrageous. Brand new. Why don't you call Elon? Tell him you've had quite enough. I'm going to text Elon before this thing is over. We're done. All right. Now. Megan from North Smithville, Rhode Island, hit the nose. No, hit the nose on the head. Hit the head hit the, the nose. nose on the head, yes. <laughs> nose on the head. Because that is where, on most people, not everybody, it's where the nose is situated. Okay, what are we hitting? Saturday. We're hitting the nail. The head on the nose. We're hitting I'm hitting the, the nose nail. on the nose. On the head. Now, what did she well, say? Anyway, she said... Silence is golden. Yeah, that's, that's there you have I've it. I've never heard that before. There it is. Well, let me just say this whole show, I think, hit the nose <laughs> on the head, give or take an inch or two, from beginning to end. There were a couple of minutes when the nose was on the side. That's right. And then it that's was That's right. I don't have enough right silence, Jim. That's why I Apparently, say things like no, that. No, it's really helping you with the creativity a lot. <laughs> I can tell you. Okay. Keep doing that silence thing, Marjorie. Thanks for listening to the edition of Boston Public Radio. You can keep up with us 24 7 by way of our podcast. Tomorrow, we're going to be at the Boston Public Library. We were going to be at Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox, but he's not going to be there. No, he's not. But Sports Authority Trenton Casey is talking about the poor patriots. And the Boston Foundation's Lee Pelton, media maven and local woman Sue O'Connell, who's always so much fun, and CNN's John King. We're also going to do a segment on where the nose is, actually. (laughs) That'll be... The second segment of the day. Well, the nose, where it's situated. The nose is on the head, yeah. right? We have a physiologist, whatever that is. <laughs> it's in the is, middle the of your face, joke. Jim. Not everybody. Just want to be clear. Not everybody, my friend. Well, yeah. Go, where else would a nose over. be? you got to close this thing up here. <laughs> Zoe Matthews, Aiden Conley, mm. Nicole Garcia, Hannah Loss, 
Additional support from Ethan Kotler. Our engineer is John. The Clark Parker. You hit that outro right on the nail. You really did. You really did. (laughs) Jamie Bologna. Who? I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Bradley. Thanks for tuning in. See you tomorrow. Hope you can tune in tomorrow or stop by the library. Bye.